Hi everyone, Jamesy here, just checking in with a quick message before we start the show properly. The following episode of Match of the Month podcast is dedicated to the memory of the late Larry Kazanka. Without Larry's invaluable contribution to our fandom over the years, a podcast such as this, or indeed an app such as Grapple, likely does not exist. Larry was a five-star match reviewer, a five-star family man, and a five-star friend to so many people. On behalf of everyone here on the Grapple Audio Network, I would like to extend my sincerest condolences to his family and anyone who has been affected by his passing. He will be sorely missed and never forgotten. And now, on with the show, as we look at the best matches from February 2020. And welcome to the February 2020 episode of the Match of the Month podcast here on the Grapple Audio Network. I'm delighted to be joined this month by a fellow Irishman and indeed a fellow Waterford man. He's the Grapple Spotlight's own young boy correspondent. He's the MLW correspondent, the AAA correspondent, a real jack of all trades, you might say. My guest today, you can hear him chuckling in the background, is none other than the great JP Houlihan. Welcome to the show, JP. How are you today? I I'm very well, sir. That's that's much better of an intro than I'll ever deserve. Thank you. And you're <laughs> right with my my correspondency duties has gone far and wide, and Joe is primarily to blame for that. <laughs> Did I miss out, Annie? Were you, were you the women's correspondent, women's wrestling correspondent I, at one point, or I was because I went to an Eve show, um, and, 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 and 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 that was it. In, in his eyes, that was it then. It, it was like anything that came about stardom, it was like, well, you're not watching it then. And then it became anything about Lucha at that point. But that's that's the kind of main stuff. And then I was on a Kento Miyahara watch for quite some time as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm very much the canary in the coal mine when it comes to the, the silly stuff. It's me that ends up watching Qatari pro wrestling, never the other two. That, that was going to be one of my questions for you, actually, because when we do this podcast, we like to just have a quick chat about our, as was our history about, of, as wrestling fans and the, the stuff we do and do do and don't watch. And I was going to say, like, what does the man who would literally sit down and watch anything from from Qatar to, to, to God knows where? Is there any blind spots in the JP Hooligan resume of, of wrestling watching or will you literally watch anything? I on a, as a rule. I will generally watch it anything, but it kind of means that you end up knowing little bits about promotions and missing out on loads of stuff. So when it comes to blind spots, uh, I don't know how it happens, but Dragon Gate is always one that I kind of want to get into, never get round to getting into, and therefore it falls through the cracks. And then you'll hear about great matches that, that, that are kind of ongoing. So Dragon Gate's always been a bit of a block. US Indies in the last sort of okay. couple of years in particular. Um, yeah, that's that kind of feels like, and I know obviously listening from last month as well, like I feel a bit more reinvigorated about wanting to catch up on, on US indie wrestling. And it feels like there's the kind of a nascent scene that had been building obviously before, before COVID. Um, so what are the other blind spots? Um, I, I'd see MLL, Zach count. Um, WWE oh, yeah. feels like, WWE feels like a big bloody blind spot. There's entire <laughs> periods of the history. Oh, it's 
just did that happen? And somebody will say, oh, that, that was a match that happened. I was like, really? It was like Jericho talking about getting punched by Mike Tyson. I was like, no recollection of that ever occurring, right. if that yeah. was ever, ever a thing. So there's, there is big blind spots that I'm trying to just use the COVID uh, period of time to kind of uh, maybe try and fill in some of them. I'm, I'm about to go on a big empty arena Jap- Japanese blitz over the next kind of week or so. Yeah, it's, it, it is hard going. And myself and Benna were laughing on the last podcast, like t- typical of our look to decide to come up with a match of the month podcast right in the middle <laughs> of the pandemic when, when really like watching a lot of this stuff is it, it is hard to kind of even, even countenance doing it like, isn't it? I know I, I have a big backlog of Japanese stuff. I, I think I'll be tapping up our friend WH Park to give us some recommendations because the idea of watching full shows in empty arenas just mm. at the moment is it is a grim prospect like, isn't it? Especially, as you said, in promotions that we mightn't be fully emotionally invested mm. in anyway. You want the crowd there kind of just, just to just to lift the whole thing up a little bit. So, yeah, it's uh, we do have a plan for, for, the, for the, the pandemic months, shall we say. Um, I, I think we'll probably get a, a show next month out of March because there's at least half the month where there was wrestling with crowds and, and WXW 16 carousels on. And there's quite a few good matches from that. And then I think what we might do is just do a full quarantine episode of it whenever we kind of get back to full wrestling worldwide however many months it takes we'll just do one single maybe empty arena episode or something like that just to cover those times as you said Mm. um and in terms of your fandom jp um Mm. were you know i was asking benno this last month were you always obviously grapple app is is a new thing um Mm. were you always a star ratings guy were you always a spreadsheet guy no i was rubbish at both I found myself to be awful at both. Um, star ratings, I won't like. I kind of almost actively avoided for quite oh, some wow. time. And look I know, at you now. And now look at me. I do a <laughs> podcast for a star rating app. Um, and both of us do, don't we? I mean, like, yeah, and, and yeah. that's and that's the kind of crazy thing. I have to say, it was actually, and this isn't like obviously, it feels like an absolute shameless plug for Grapple, but it really was Grapple that kind of got me into doing it because it was partly um just uh, it, it just would have been the fact of not organizing myself enough and i think there was probably points in time particularly in the sort of late 2000s through to the kind of mid 2010s where i was just a dad with young kids and the idea of keeping a spreadsheet oh, yeah. up to date at home seemed like the stuff of a madman's dreams um Whereas now I've got the time for it and now I've got the app and the resource to be able to do it. So I do it quite merrily. But I have a kind of the way I think of star ratings in general is I kind of almost try and view it like film ratings. And that's what's kind of worked for me. So the idea of five star matches can happen, but they can also obviously be completely subjective depending on the type of film it is, for example. And And I kind of look at things like four stars as a general guide for like, watch this. You're going to have you're going to have some good stuff out of this. And then the incremental 0.25, 0.5, 0.75 kind of it's it's kind of incrementally getting there to the kind of next step. So in my head, I think I've gotten the whole concept of star ratings down. So I'm I'm kind of I kind of feel good for it now. But um, I've seen your spreadsheet wizardry on a on a minor scale. You were always a, a spreadsheet guy. I I was saying this to Benno on the last episode. It, it was always a thing in my head that I wanted to do. 
and mm. Manny's a year. I made a great start in January and I got everything up on it. And then I just slowly, you just forget about it or you fade out of it. You know what I mean? But as of 20, 2016, 17, I was doing it to a certain extent. And then I religiously did it from the start of 2018. And I found if you did it with discipline for a couple of months and really just forced yourself to do it, that it just becomes second nature. You know what I mean? I'd be sitting there and I'll tap the rating into Grapple or I'll tap it into the notes app on my phone and then put it onto the PC the next day and work then. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, I, and, I, and myself and Ben were laughing that it's it's in work that we keep our strategies for the most part, <laughs> yeah. which 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 we hope our bosses aren't listening that we're, we're spending as much time updating wrestling spreadsheets as we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, you know? Um, but the other well, thing if they listen to this, they're probably very happy with you if you're doing it then at work. <laughs> if they're fans of this, that's true enough, which which I doubt they are, to be perfectly honest with you. The other thing I was going to ask you before we before we get into our our, our February matches and that kind of thing, um, you're a bit like myself, JP. I think from the point of view that you you came to podcasting late in your life as a wrestling fan, like like I, I didn't mm. do a podcast until I would say my my early to mid thirties, I'd say. Um, mm. Is that is that the same route you took? Kind of, I think it's 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 not something I, I I don't think I'd have had the nerve to do it when I was in my twenties and even in my mid thirties doing it for a long time. It was a very nerve wracking thing. Are you a bit like Ian Rice? Um, you're getting kind of, it blossomed late in your career, JP, and it's only in your thirties you came to international prominence. I I will happily take that. I will happily <laughs> take that all day. Any Ian Wright comparison, I'm, I'm very very good with. Do you know, that's absolutely spot on. Yeah, I came into doing it uh, very late. I suppose at the point when I started to go with Joe going back to kind of UK indie shows sort of around 2014. Nice. At the point then when when I'd met Benno and we were having these conversations and we were speaking about this and it was just like it kind of came to the point of actually we've kind of generally got kind of not similar perspectives, but we kind of felt like like the conversations were always interesting and it was like, well, why don't we try doing this? And so, and yeah, and, and did it quite late on and yeah. So we've been doing it now. We've been doing sort of the, the show in total, including back on Indie Corners three, uh, three years now. Wow. Um, that long? God. Three years. Yeah. Yeah. And we've kind of gone. Yeah, exactly. From the Indie Corner days, they're very straight laced days. It feels like watching classic Krusty. If you listen to those, <laughs> yeah. it is him talking about whether there's a labor crisis in America. Um, oh God. Yeah, it's very straight laced, like sort of the Chris Travis tag team invitational and attack and sort of very serious straight laced analysis. Oh. But it was lots of Brit rest to do. And then I think like as with all of these things, and you mentioned like coming to it late, it's, it's kind of knowing what you really kind of want to say. If it makes any sense or what kind of what the things are of interest to you that you feel like you want to share in podcast form and now jamesy it feels like it's second nature doesn't it yeah and that's the thing i i think as you said did i know myself in my 20s did i i don't know was i as like i people who listen to me regularly on podcasts will know i kind of know who i am as a fan at this point i know mm. what i like i know what i don't like and i suppose i feel like i'm in i'm able to articulate that as well you know what i mean whereas if I was doing it in my 20s, I think I'd have been all over the place. You know what I mean? And as I said, I don't even know if I'd have had the nerve to do it. And I think it's I think I'm probably better for it. But I waited to being a little bit older until I kind of had an idea of of where I was as a fan. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that we're both, both late bloomers, JP. Oh, we are having those kind of <laughs> late career revivals. I'm trying to think of a, 
sort of an old central midfielder that we could say. So someone who's like 37 or so knocking around the place. It's, I, Remember one Gary of those. McAllister oh, went to Liverpool. Oh, God. And he had that amazing final season where he turned into yeah. the best player well, they, in the world. They, they won three cups. I won't call it the treble because it wasn't the treble. There's only one treble. <laughs> and Liverpool didn't win it. But he had that. Remember, he, he went on a free transfer from Coventry. And he played about 50 matches for them and he was brilliant. So there you go. I take that. I always like Gary McAllister as a player. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the time, I was living with two Liverpool fans. Oh, they, had a spot on the, they had a spot on the sofa because it was just lucky sofa where they watched all of that run. And they were convinced that it was the sofa's work. It was nothing to oh, do yeah. really with Gary McAllister. And they would be watching it. It was kind of nightmarish, but fun because it would always result in crazy last minute goals. And, the, and you're just watching these bonkers games. Yeah, I don't know how we got onto that. What are your favourite topics, Jamesy? Liverpool Football Club. Oh, we, God. We are talking about it. <laughs> and the football is coming back. They're going to get their trophy, Jamesy. Yeah. We had a bit of hope there for a while. <laughs> at least at least it'll be an empty stadium. It'll be a little bit hollow anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we better get into these top five. So we're sticking with the, with the kind of the, the, the same routine as we did the last time. We both come up with our top five matches of the month. We've both come up with a little list of honourable mentions. We'll have a quick look through uh, the top. Uh, Grapple Gareth has done great work again, providing us with the top 10 average rated matches from the app for February 2020. And then you've come up with a very special classic match, which we'll discuss at the end of the podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So um, let's crack into it, JP. There's no point in, in delaying it any further. Um, we'll, go in, we'll go from five to one and we'll go with my number five, first of all, if that's OK. So my number five pick is from Pro Wrestling Noah. It was on the 16th of February and it was Katsuhiko Nakajima against Hideki Suzuki. Um, Low enough grapple average. It's only got an average of 3.77 on the app. Um, For me, it was a 4.5 star match. Um, This match was a 30 minute draw in Corican Hall. And I think the best way to kind of break this match down, I suppose, is to split it into three distinct sections. Um, The opening segment of the match would be very much taking place on the mat. And... It's pretty slow, deliberate, patient mat work, which is always fine with me. Um, and because Hideki Suzuki is in there, like he would be one of the best mat workers anywhere in the world. Like it, it's always interesting to me. I'm never sitting there bored watching it. And it's really, really good stuff. And then all of a sudden the match explodes into life. And we kind of go into the second segment of the match, which turns into a brawl around Corican Hall. And um Nakajima is a really good brawler. He's, he's, he's known as a kind of a, or in the past he would have been known, I suppose, as, as a kicky junior heavyweight who was always doing the stiff kicks and that kind of thing. But he's kind of taken on this more arrogant, aggressive persona in the last few years. And the brawl around the arena is really good. It's it, it, Suddenly the match has a focus, like he's kicking away at Suzuki's leg. Um, it's fascinating because Suzuki sells for Nakajima. Suzuki is a weird guy where if he doesn't respect his opponent, he can be downright uncooperative and nearly awkward in his matches where, where he won't sell for them or he won't kind of play ball almost. And it's, 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 it's his great strength as a wrestler, but it's also his great failing as a wrestler. Whereas when he's not cooperating, the match can fall apart. But when he is, when he's, when he's in the mood and when he respects his opponent, he will sell for him. And he's actually selling this leg as they're, as they're brawling around Corican Hall. And it just makes for a really interesting dynamic. And then for the third segment, they go back to the ring. And at this point, there's maybe 10 minutes left in the match. Um, we're sensing that there might be a draw. We're kind of getting to the time limit. And I suppose it turns into the, the typical Puro match. You know what I mean? That they're striking, they're hitting the big moves, they're hitting their finishers. 
and there's a real great sense of desperation. Like they, 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 it, you get the impression that these guys want to beat the clock. They want to get the win rather than settling for the draw. They're scrambling for pinfalls. And the whole match just builds into this great, great crescendo, keeps escalating. So you, you kind of go from patient mat work to brawling and limb work into the big pure of stuff at the end with the big bombs flying. And it's just really, really good. And I think my, my favourite moment of the whole match, JP, was um, there's this kind of a... I suppose it's a taunt, you'd call it, that Nakajima does, where he puts his opponent kind of sitting in the corner against the turnbuckles, and he almost lies across the ropes with his two feet stuck into their face, and he's kind of jawing with the crowd, and he's sneering and laughing and that kind of thing. But I talked earlier about Hideki Suzuki being uncooperative. And he's just not taking this shit from this guy. Like so, so he's trying to do the taunt, and he keeps batting his legs away. He keeps he's just he's just not prepared to kind of concede even that little couple of minutes of being underneath to, to this Nakajima guy. You know what I mean? I just you know most people just sit there and let Nakajima do it, and it's it's a little bit kind of contrived sometimes. And you're kind of thinking, God, would you not fight back? And Suzuki does does the logical thing and fights back and won't let him do it. And it just adds a nice little edge to the match, you know. And I I just found this a really Really interesting, really varied match. A clash of personalities. You've got the really stoic, you know, and serious Hideki Suzuki with a slow and deliberate style. And you've got Nakajima, who's got this spiky personality and this hard-hitting style. And the best thing I can say about the match is I want to see it happen again. And I think if you come out of a 30-minute draw wanting to see a rematch, I think everybody concerned has done their job, you know. Mm. I would go with you on that. Because I have to say, before this, this was one that had kind of pass me by um particularly because i suppose i mean noah at that point was was this before the buyout from cyber agent i think it might have just been before because you see a sort of lot of lidette signs around yeah so it doesn't have that ddt kind of uh match graphic on it so i think you're right yeah yeah it it could even be up there sort of yeah it might have been like sort of the second last of the lidette era of that and nakajima is a kind of fascinating figure um like kind of following his career because he's kind of the youngest grizzled vet that there kind of is, isn't there? He's only oh, yeah, 32 yeah. and he's been doing this since he was 16. Was he in the dome yeah. when he was 16? He was because me, me and Alan watched a match a while back and it was mm. him, him tagging with um, Kensuke, his, 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 his mentor, Kensuke Sasaki. And like, yeah, he was wrestling in the Tokyo dome from a ridiculously, and, and, and seemed to be just good from the moment he started wrestling. One of these guys yeah. like Bert Angle or Matt Riddle or Junakiyama where they were just always good. There was never a time when Katsuhiko Nakajima wasn't a good wrestler, you know? Exactly. And then, you know, and I suppose because, you know, I kind of follow Noah in and out. So the last time I was kind of aware of him was the tag team that he had with Go Shiyazaki. I can remember that G1 run from a few years back and it was a shame that that kind of Noah, that 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 angle never happened because it looked so heated and that would have been something that maybe would have taken it because it looked like him and Shibata was the natural match they were going to go to. Oh yeah. That that looks that looked that looked like it would have been incredible for the time. So when watching this I kind of really didn't have necessarily too much in the way of expectations. But like I found that the 30 minute time limit draw took me by surprise. And it's not like they go at a blistering pace at any stage during this. And it's interesting for me you kind of watch you mentioned about like Suzuki not playing ball and Nakajima is a spiky character. There is this kind of, like we mentioned it kind of even earlier on about ourselves. They they kind of know who they are as wrestlers at, at, yeah. at this point and their reactions to things. So I found myself, those opening exchanges of the kind of feeling each other out on the mat. I was trying to work out when, when they 
did they run the ropes at any stage during this? Because it kind of felt like it was like catch wrestling at those points in a kind of classical way. They were filling each other out, but they weren't breaking eye contact there as well, looking to get control of the centre of the ring. And I kind of found myself sort of, trans, I wouldn't say transfixed necessarily, but that was kind of where my interest really was with it. And it and it kind of, net, like you say, then he went to that second stage and they go outside and they do the brawl. And then it gets into the kind of kick exchanges. And I, and I love Nakajima's kicks. They're just lovely. And it oh. might just be the, the kick pads as well kind of completely complement it. Um, and I kind of like that kind of attritional wrestling for the last 10. So this for me is, you know, kind of mention it. It's, it's you know, the, for a show like this, you kind of want to find things that you haven't seen before and wouldn't have really thought to get around to watching. Yeah, yeah. I found myself enjoying it. And I went with four, I went with four stars on this one. And like I say, I thought I wanted to see what they do next when, yeah, you know, exactly. what, what is the next stage in this? And like you said before, if they're getting you to do that, then that's the job done. Exactly. And to what you said there, JP, a part of my mission statement for, for this podcast is to have variety in my list if I can, because I do want to shine the light on matches like this, that, you know, if it wasn't for WH Park giving us his, his, his Japanese wrestling recommendations in the group. Oh, yeah. This probably would have slipped me by. It, it, it's kind of a match that I haven't heard much fanfare about. As I said, like th- th- there's only been 29 people have actually rated it on Grapple. So people aren't watching it. It's a 3.77 average. So maybe if people want a bit of homework, maybe seek this match out. I'll mm. put the link from YouTube up on uh, when we put the show up on Twitter um, and give it a look because it, it it's just interesting. It feels like something different. And as you said, two fully formed professionals, I would say, putting on a great match and putting on an mm. interesting match over 30 minutes, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, JP, we will move to your number five, I think. Yes. So for my number five, I I went with a match um, a, a, that I really enjoyed. Um, it kind of doesn't outstay its its welcome. It's it's kind of two big personalities. And it was John Moxley uh, versus Minoru Suzuki. For the US Championship, and that was at the New Beginning in Osaka event on the 9th of Feb. Um, I this was a match I was always looking forward to, and it wasn't a match that I kind of knew. With this, I knew what I wanted from it at the time, and I got what I wanted from it, and that for me made me enjoy it ever so much because it's just the way that it starts off. And it's the kind of attitude of both men. And it's both men kind of using their aura to sell yeah, the match. Exactly. And and it's and they kind of dominate the room. And it's when Moxley kind of he comes through the crowd, goes to the ring, goes back up the ramp, Suzuki comes over, there's the two chairs, and it's kicking off. And when re-watching this, I was like, Oh god, yeah, yeah, this is really good fun. It it's kind of much more of a spectacle than as a match. And there's there's a match that spoiler alert isn't included in it, which is Nick Gage versus Ricky Shane Page, and I kind of thought <laughs> this is as close to a death match yes. as I would kind of want on here at all. Um, I love the way that they used the um, the AWI angle with Chris Jericho into it. They kind of did it seamlessly, and they made sure to mention Jericho, but they never mention AEW, and it's kind of like ah, oh, this is it, it. Kind of it makes me smile when I see that. It's a simple match. It's obviously very brawling heavy. Um, 
but it's brutal and effective and it doesn't outstay its welcome and i you know the striking between it as well minora suzuki strike exchanges i can generally watch all day and and if you're looking for something that is you know from a from a match perspective just an all-out brawl really this is the one um i'd love to see him do it again i would love to see in an ideal world AEW get Minoru Suzuki in for a one-off match to do some oh, sort of rematch with them as well I think they could do really really good stuff with that as well but yeah I uh 4.25 for me um yeah really good fun yeah and I, I'm exactly with you on the 4.25 yeah I gave a 4, 4.25 rating as well it broke my heart not to have this on my 5 so when when you told me this was on your 5 <laughs> I was delighted as at least I get to yeah. talk about it it would be my number 6 match of the month I would say that's how close it got um, and like this genuinely is a dream match for me like I remember when 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 Moxley did the interview with wasn't it with Jericho he did that interview when he left WWE and he was talking about wanting to do New Japan and the first name that came into my head is Minoru Suzuki. You know, you're thinking of all the big guys in New Japan. Suzuki was the match I wanted. Do you remember on night two of, of Wrestle Kingdom when Moxley had beaten, wasn't it Juice Robinson he beat on night two? And then when Suzuki came out, that for me was one of the biggest pops of that whole weekend. To, to, see, to see those two guys squaring off and to know then you're going to get the match. Like I'm punching the air at delight at the thought of this, you know. Um, and I honestly think, JP, that, that I, I enjoy Mox more in New Japan than AEW. Um, I, I just think New Japan really suits him. I think he mm. comes across so wild and so different to everyone else in that promotion. His, his matches are so different to, to the New Japan tropes. And like mm. I do find as time goes on, New Japan is becoming a very trope-heavy promotion. There's there's a definite formula to the matches. You know, you're going to get people whipped into the guardrails at some point in a match. You're going to get a count-out spot. You're going to get an elaborate finishing sequence. And it feels like more and more of the talent is fitting into that formula. And then in comes John Moxley and just rips the book up. On, on that formula, you know what I mean? And just says, no, not doing any of that. I'm coming in here to have my matches. And you think of the variety of matches he's had, like, like during that G1, he did some grappling, he did some limb work matches, he did that amazing brawl with Ishii, mm. and then he comes and does this match. And like, as you said, about charisma and about personality, like this is just two of the biggest personalities in pro wrestling meeting in a match. You know what I mean? And it's, they do things in this match that if anybody else did, you'd find silly and you'd kind of shake your head and go, I don't like this. But because it's Moxley and Suzuki doing it, you're into it. Like so much of it is just dependent on facial expressions. Suzuki laughing things off. Like at one stage, Moxley put Suzuki through a table and Suzuki just lies on the floor and laughs. And it's one of the, all he does is laughs. And it's one of the biggest moments in the whole match. You know what I mean? Something totally small and simple like that. And he makes, like he's the master of making so much out of so little. Um, You know, hitting them, the table breaks and Suzuki hits himself in the head with the table just to show Moxley how crazy he is. And then Moxley has to go and do the same. Just He refuses to be one-upped by this guy. So Suzuki does this crazy thing and then Moxley goes and does it himself because he refuses to kind of even give that much to him, you know. Um, the one little criticism I would have, and I suppose the thing that maybe just kept it off my list, was the spot they did with the arm where um, Suzuki at one point traps Moxley's arm between a chair Mm. And hits it with a chair and rams it into the ring post and puts an armband on armbar on in the apron. And the, like, I watched it with the English commentary and the English commentary are playing this up like Moxley's arm is broken. 
Yeah. And it, it feels like, okay, that's now the story the match is going to take. And Suzuki's going to start going after the arm and he's going to start putting on all his arm bars. And so it's the logical direction I thought it would take. And it kind of didn't go that way. And, and Moxley sells it quite well. And they do a strike exchange and he's forced to use his left arm to punch instead. And it's yeah. going well. And I'm sitting there nodding my head. You know what I'm like, JP? I'm nodding my <laughs> head in approval at, at this bit of selling, thinking, yes, lads, that's exactly what you should be doing. But then it kind of just drifts away and Moxley goes back to using the normal and arm and you don't really see the arm again and maybe it's me being over critical you know but um if we're talking about best matches of the month i would say that was just that one little thing where i was a little bit unsatisfied by the match but apart from that it's just a glorious match you know what i mean too a gloriously bonkers match i would say and i love the idea of there being these unique matches in new japan because a lot of it feels very much the same to me as time goes on you know yep absolutely and 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 like say it's it's just being different from everybody else isn't it and it's not following that kind of typical feeling out match structure that for big matches and the expectation yeah. and i think in terms of the runtime it's less than it's about 15 minutes or so. definitely under 20 for sure it's it, yeah. and like i i appreciate brevity so much but when you're watching you know we had a big long list of matches a lot of big main yeah. events to watch here when you see a video with a nice short runtime on it you are grateful for it <laughs> it's like it's like when you're in the g1 and there's a 10 minute match and you're, yeah. you're you're much more kind to that match in your review because they've been <laughs> short and they haven't made you sit there for 30 40 minutes you know what i mean like i'm all for brevity in wrestling i, I think if you can tell a good story in 20 minutes then why spend 40 minutes doing it you know Exactly. And and for this as well, there isn't really much in the way of wasted motion. But like you, I thought it was strange. Like I said, when they were building up about the arm being broken and it's like, yeah, he's now he's now managing to sort of use it for the for the lefts and the rights. And then just sort of it's not mentioned again and certainly doesn't play into the sort of finish with the paradigm shift either. But but like, again, it's it's small things. It's it's kind of in the scheme of things, the presence and everything else kind of sells the match and and that kind of makes it and that sort of lifts it to that higher level absolutely yeah and a great choice jp as i said i was so happy when you had it on your list that we'd get a chance to rave about it it would have it was in my honorable mention so we, we can tick that one off the honorable mentions list anyway is one one less to talk about um so we'll move back now to my number four and this is a match that, that's not on the grapple app we'll have to get grapple gareth on, on the big japan that's the next thing he has to put up yeah. there now jp I, I have a few big japan matches in my in my honorable mentions as well um and it's from big japan wrestling it's the 11th of february and it's for their junior heavyweight championship. And it's Yuya Aoki versus Fuminori Abe. And again, I had this match at four and a half stars. Um, very, very much. Benno always calls them the Jamesy match when we're talking about mm-hmm. the British wrestling experience. This is very, very much a Jamesy match. Um, and Fuminori Abe in particular is someone that I'd like to talk a little bit about. Um, again, I'd like to kind of shine a line on wrestlers that I feel aren't as maybe as widely as appreciated as they should be. And Fuminori Abbey is definitely that. Like he's, he's, I would say he's a completely unique wrestler. I don't know of anyone else on the planet who does what he does and who does what he does so well. He's very much a clone of his mentor, who was Munanori Sawa. For anybody who was maybe watching the old Evolve shows back in the day, he would have been on a few of those. Um, Abbey is, he's a world-class grappler. He's, he's a world-class striker. But then he also has this really big personality where he almost has this fun-loving and comedic character. Um, He moves around the ring in a way I haven't really seen anyone else ever do. He executes moves in a way that no one else does. He hits these dragon screws, JP, and Mm. 
with possibly the exception of of Tanahashi himself, nobody hits a dragon screw like him. And there's a particular type of dragon screw he does. It's it's like a running dragon screw where when his opponent is running the ropes towards him, he can run towards them and somehow manage to hit this perfect dragon screw on them. And it just looks incredible when he hits it. Um, his speed between the ropes, his footwork, he, but he's nasty as well. Like he'll do these things when he's grappling with somebody. And he'll do those, you know, those little little nasty punches that you'd give someone in school where you'd use your knuckles and you'd wrap them down on the top. Maybe I was in a rougher school to you now, JP, I don't know, <laughs> but where you wrap someone on the top of the head and it's extremely painful. It makes your eyes water. And he just does, though, I never saw anyone else use them in a wrestling match. Um, and he's hard as nails. Like I've seen him have matches against heavyweights in Big Japan, like taking headbutts from the like of a Kohei Sato that literally make his forehead bleed and he just laps them off and comes back begging for more, you know. And just just a really great wrestler. I would encourage people, again, if they have a bit of spare time during this whole pandemic, look up a few of his matches because he, he really is one of a kind. And it's almost, it's a pity he doesn't work in more places because he's not actually a Big Japan guy. He's a freelancer who happens to work work Big Japan quite a lot. So, um, like, God, if, if they could fly him over to the UK or Europe for a tour, I guarantee you he would blow people's minds. Um, and the match itself is it's very much Abbey being serious. He's not doing an awful lot of comedic stuff. Again, we talked about brevity, 15 minute match, tight, efficient match. Mm-hmm. There's no fat on them on it whatsoever. No wasted motion, no wasted time. The math work is really fast and aggressive. Um, Abbey does a really good job going after Aoki's knee. Um, I would say it's a match that we talked about the Noah match kind of escalating as time went on. This match also escalates, but it kind of quickly escalates rather than in the kind of slow burn way that the Noah match did. There's brutal strike exchanges. Um, everything's done at a breakneck pace. You know, it's, 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 it's as fast moving and well executed as any Dragon Gate match would be. Um, I would sum this match up. I was talking to Benno last month about, I think there was a, a New Japan tag with Shingo and Evil and Ishii and Goto. And we yeah. talked about it being a comfort food match. And I would say very much this is a comfort food match. 15 minutes, all action. You don't have to concentrate on it very hard like you would a big long main event. You don't have to look for nuance in it. It's very much what you see is what you get. Um, and I'm wondering, did you enjoy it, JP? Because I don't know, was was this a match that was one that was on your radar before? or Not really. And and it's probably because the thing with Big, big Japan is, I suppose in a way I end up thinking of Big Japan as it's kind of it's heavyweight scene and um and i kind of think of the sort of bigger wrestlers obviously with um uh 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 daichi um sekimoto oh yeah, yeah. that's what i'm doing sekimoto and okabayashi um and then having seen daichi hashimoto before i kind of think of that and the death matches and for me the juniors feels like one of those cracks that it it falls down into and i kind of miss it so in some ways i was I was quite grateful for it because, uh, again, coming into it really with sort of nothing in the way of investment, curious to see what um, the Big Japan Juniors are like. Sort of watched it and kind of looked at Abe and I and, and I thought, well, this guy, he looks like he's, he's very, very smooth in the ring, like mm. incredibly smooth on that. And he's just the twist and the talk on those um, dragons on those dragon screws that he does. It's really there's just something very economical about him. Yeah, and exactly. That's the word. It, yeah. And it was, and it was just like you say, 15 minutes. When you say it's all action, there's no wasted motion. It's not like they're going a million miles an hour and they're trying to kind of reinvent the wheel with it. Um, I thought Aoki did a good job as clearly oh, yeah, yeah. like 
their junior guy that they're that they're trying to build up there as well. And the fact that I thought his leg selling was good um, in terms of his um, not being able to, to celebrate as well. Um, I thought his, the way he took the kicks from Arbe, and you mentioned about Arbe striking as well. And it, so it just, it just was a really good sequence for that. And then he had the drop kick into the Lariat and the German. And I thought all of that stuff, I kind of, I was like, oh, I've really enjoyed it. And then it was over. And it was like, oh, okay, that was a, that was a really good fun match to watch. And so I went four stars on it and it was something that I enjoyed mm. and it was an easy watch. And as a result, I'm curious about both of these guys. But like you mentioned, Arby Afters, when looking on, on, at his career, he's still only 25. Yeah, very and young man. Yeah. Very young man. You're looking at him as a freelancer. You're thinking, where can he go into? And you think, you know, I, it, it makes you wonder whether, you know, all Japan he's been in this year, whether or not would he end up in a Noah at any point or, you know, that, that you'd hope that there would be options for him to come in. And you mentioned about a tour. That would be great. I mean, he would be the kind of person that you'd want to see. I can see you mentioned this as well, like see him at an ambition. Perhaps. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be good. And see him come over as a kind of unknown quantity and, and have, have some matches and, and do a bit of a tour here, obviously travel restrictions permitting. But yeah, enjoyed it. Four stars. Good fun. Yeah, and you, I, I forgot to talk about Aoki. Like uh, you mentioned him there, uh, and totally like held up his. I don't want to say that this was a this was not a carry job by Abai by any means. Mm. Aoki totally held up his end of things. He's basically the ace of their junior division, and, and as you said yeah. before this year, I would not have. It wouldn't have occurred to me like I, I'd, I'd be cherry picking big Japan shows and I'd be looking at the strong division and the big lads and looking at the heavyweight title. I would never even think of looking at the juniors. But Aoki has really caught my attention. And I'm, there's another match in my honorable mentions of his that I'll talk about a little bit later as well. A guy to watch, a guy who seems like he's having a breakout year and a guy maybe for the rest of the year for people to keep an eye on. Kind of a guy who would make it onto people's wrestler of the year if you're doing a top 50. A guy who might make it into the lower regions of that just based on the matches he's having. And I think the best analogy I could think about, so I was trying to think of a good, a good grapple. You have to come up with your analogies when you're on the grapple network, you know, though, you know, oh, yeah. yourself and yourself and Joe. Remember when Jurgen Klopp came to Liverpool and all the talk was about heavy metal football? Yep. And everything yes. is done at 90 miles an hour, pressing, you know, non-stop. I would call this match heavy metal wrestling. It literally, it just starts and it never gives up. And you just get 15 minutes of full intense wrestling, just like the, the, the Jurgen Klopp. What was it? Gagan Pressing, isn't that what he calls it? Yeah, that's it. The Gagan Press. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I'm keeping my. I have to get. I'm after. I don't get that's paid good, by Grapple. Mate. If I don't put three of those per show, Grapple Garrett doesn't give me my check. Isn't that right, JP? Yeah, that's what he's like, mate. It's, <laughs> he's a dictator of Grapple Towers. He's not he's on the this show. I, people <laughs> don't realise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tough man. He's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, JP, you're number four. My number four. I. I went for this one, um, particularly because, again, thinking of something different, part of the appeal for me is this is a, a TV wrestling match. And I went with the Ironman match from Dynamite from February 26th, and it was Kenny Omega versus Pac. And it was the match they used to open up the show. And when I was going through on Grapple, I was managed to filter it so I could see all the sort of highest rated matches I had over the month. When I was looking through them, I was thinking this one is sticking with me other than, you know, more so than matches mm. that that perhaps I would have rated more in that particularly given moment. And there's a match that kind of got, 
got bumped off as a result of this. I like as a television match, it's it's fantastic because the way again, we you know, on a on a show where you're looking at matches, a lot of it is going to really about the structure of the match mm. and how they structured it, how they structured the rest spots, and how they had some of the sort of more sports entertainment tropes of of tables, a ref bump, you've got a DQ, things that normally you or I would really dislike, yeah. and things that we would just be thinking, oh Christ, this again. And they work this in, and really what they are is they're the rest spots in the thirty minute match. Exactly. They're the kind yeah. of they they form that distraction and. As far as TV matches go, you're going to be hard pushed to find anything better than this. Um, really, I, I I thought like it helped having a hot crowd because it was the first match they had on that night. Um, there was two rest spots in that first 15 minutes because the pace that they go at, and you think because they've got a countdown clock the whole time, you're you would you would imagine oh I'm going to pay lots of attention to it. Well, to bring it back to football, it's like one of those matches where you watch and all of a sudden you look up at the scoreboard and there's like half an hour gone. And you're like, Christ, mm, right, that seems yeah. to have gone quickly. And it's just the sign of it that I kind of looked at it and it was like 15 minutes. And I was like, right, OK, I haven't seen any rest spots really during this match at all. And it kind of highlights for me I, what a great month Kenny had overall. Yeah, but yeah. so much about Pat. And about how good he is at everything. And about how he's kind of like, he's a perfect opponent for Kenny Omega. Because you've got the complete antithesis of him as a character. But you've got the fact as well that he's only ever spectacular when he has to be. It isn't something he's going to offer up to the crowd. I know when he first came on the indie scene, like I have to say, there was a lot of stuff about the crowd. Particularly because of the DQ stuff. That when he had still the Dragon Gate title. And that made me feel unhappy. And it now feels like, that kind of restriction isn't there. He did, which it makes sense why he did the kind of loyalty he has towards Dragon Gate as well. But now you're kind of like seeing so much more of him about how much better he is as well. And about how good he is, you know, later on that month, he has a match with Orange Cassidy, which I would have said, I would have been kind of fearing having sat through a lot of Orange Cassidy WrestleMania Mm. weekends. But do you know what? Like he had a great match with him and there's, in this match, he is, like I say, he's the perfect opponent for Kenny Omega. He gets the best out of Omega during this as well. There are so many moments on this from here. I thought the top rope brain buster was, was incredible. Um, you know, there was just the um, the improvisation when he had the power bomb from the corner. That first DQ, which is the first DQ they had in company history, and Excalibur yes. then notes it later on in there. It's the best kind of DQ you possibly could have had. It is a DQ that has genuine meaning, fits in, and logically works. It makes sense. Why wouldn't you just beat somebody up for a minute with a chair, knowing you're going to be disqualified and you lose the fall, and then you can go in, hit your manoeuvre, get 1-1, and they're already kind of battered, and then in theory you'd go on and try and win. And that works, and it communicates itself to the audience and to the viewer as well. Um, and everything after that, in that last 10 minutes, like, obviously, they're kind of tired. But what they end up doing is, like, kind of really big, high-impact moves that mean something. And then there's a kind of break as, you know, where you find yourself, you know, Kenny's trying to struggle in and out of the uh, the brutalizer as well, which 
you know, pack slipping because it's half an hour and he's tired yeah. and it's not kind of perfect. And it's that kind of messiness that, that I think makes it for this. And then, you know, the um, I thought the count out spot and you mentioned a kind of trope for New Japan as well, because AEW haven't really done this. This was the best of the count out spots because you've got Matt Jackson there on the outside as well. And he's um, and he's sort of willing to push him in there as well. They obviously it plays into the whole Bucks, um, Page and Omega storyline as well. So you've got that, but it's not overbearing. It doesn't take anything away from the match. It adds to the match as well. And then when you've got the overtime and the victory as as well for it, like on rewatch, I, I'll be honest, I was tempted to go four and a half. I erred on the side of, yeah, side yeah. of caution. I went for four point two five, but I don't know if we're gonna we will see a better TV match. So for the rest of the year, um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed this. Oh yeah, phenomenal match. And like I, I, I had it on my sheet as four point two five. I, I, I'm still looking at it and I still might go back to the sheet and, mm. and, and nudge it up to the 4.5. Like it is a phenomenal match and you've done a superb analysis of it there, JP. Like you've broken down all the major spots. It, it's, you talked about speed and intensity. Like sometimes we criticize modern wrestlers for being all go and for all action. Mm. But like sometimes we have to just kind of shake our heads in awe at what like they can go 30 minutes. Like they probably wrestled maybe 33, 30, between, between extra time and everything in this match. They were in the ring for maybe 33, 34, 35 match, minutes. And the the physical ability to do that, like we probably should give people praise for it more. Like two mm. absolute studs that can do that. Like, you know, like wrestlers could not do this 10 years ago, not to mind five years ago even, you know. Um, and as a result, the match flies by. There's, there's very little downtime. And when there is downtime, it feels important that it feels earned. Um, yes. The fact that there's a face heel dynamic and like it, it, this rivalry with Pac almost saved Kenny in a way in AEW. He was floundering badly in that promotion for a while. He didn't know who he was. We talked earlier about finding ourselves and that kind of thing. He didn't know who he was as a US TV wrestler. And it was this match and the subsequent match at the weekend and teaming up with Paige that kind of rescued him and put him back on the track. And we're getting the Kenny Omega that we all loved in New Japan back in 2018, 2019. You know what I mean? He's back. Oh, yeah. I felt after I felt after this match, I watched it and I said to myself, Kenny Omega is back. And like, you have to give Pac. Pac is one of the greatest facilitators of a wrestler I think there is in pro wrestling where he will make, he's selfless. As you said, he actually deliberately doesn't do the flashy stuff anymore until mm-hmm. it's really warranted. And he's amazing at making people look good. Like the way he takes people's moves, the way he takes a DDT, and folds himself over. He makes everybody's finisher look amazing. He's an incredible wrestler. And, you know, uh, as you said, that DQ spot, if DQs had been happening left, right, and center in AEW, like they do in WWE, where there's three or four per show sometimes, you know, on a TV show, this wouldn't have meant anything. It would have been just a shrug of the shoulders, and you kind of feel like, God, they've done the DQ thing that I've seen in lots and lots of WWE iron matches over the years. But because it was the first time ever that a referee had called a DQ, it felt huge. The crowd went nuts for it. The commentators picked up on it and it felt massive. You know what I mean? So a DQ becoming a good thing in a wrestling match. Like when is the last time that happened? WWE have ruined DQs almost. You know what I mean? Where they become a thing we criticize and it's a thing we can praise in this match. Do you know? Go on. Yeah. 
I was going to say he pulled a bit of a Dominic Cummings there, didn't he? Um, <laughs> because what he did is he manipulated the rules in order to get an unfair advantage, and it pissed off the audience. <laughs> and like Cummings, he had no interest in apologising. <laughs> the bastard Cummings, we'll call him from now on. He is. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you nailed it as well, JP. The struggle in that brutalizer. Like, there was a good three minutes where Kenny's in and out of it. And at one point, they're in the wrong position on the floor. Like, he's not in the right position on the mat to take it properly. But because Pac is so desperate to get the win, he just puts on a modified version of the brutalizer. He's basically wringing his neck in any way he can to try mm-hmm. and get that tap out. Uh, and it's just really, really amazing stuff. Uh, and as you said, like, we forget that this was 72 hours before a big tag match on a pay-per-view that we will, I think everybody will know we're going to be talking about that match between the Bucks and Omega and Page later on. Like you, you forget that it's only the prelude to that. You know what I mean? And I thought the Bucks being in his corner was just without them ever dominating the match. There's that thing in the back of your head when they pick Omega up off the floor and throw him back in the ring. There's a part of you thinking, God, doesn't that suit them very much to throw him back into to this vicious pack who's on the ring to, to, to damage him more so that they might take the tag titles off him? So there's nuance there. The, the commentators don't go on about it a lot. They mention it every now and again that, God, doesn't it suit the books that he's having a grueling 30-minute match? But it's not like WWE where they would have beaten us over the head with that and mentioned it every 30 seconds. You know, it's done in a subtle way and you're left to kind of question it yourself you know what I mean and even during that DQ I don't know if you noticed that the Bucks are on the ring apron and they distract the ref and it gives Pac the chance then to hit Kenny with the chair and it's again you're thinking God if they, if they hadn't been up on that ring apron maybe Kenny wouldn't have got that chair shot did they want Kenny to take the chair shot you know so you're just the shades of grey there where you're second guessing everything Um and it's really good stuff. It's storytelling. And like, you know, we will talk more about storytelling in that tag match. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just a brilliant piece of business. The fact they opened the show with it, you know, you would expect it to be a main event. They opened the show, so it gave them plenty of time. They didn't have to worry about going off air or anything like that, which was probably a major concern. But it meant the crowd was red hot. They were full of energy. They were popping for everything. They were totally engaged with the whole thing. Just an amazing, amazing piece of business. My only tiny, tiny little critique is I felt that the overtime... It just kind of happened. And Kenny was in that brutalizer for so long. He kind of just jumped up and hit a few V triggers and hit his finisher. And that was it. And it wasn't, there was a little lack of drama in it. Maybe I thought he could have sold a little bit more. Now I'm being very nitpicky and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not trying to take away from how good the match was, but maybe there could have been a little bit more in that where he'd sold the neck a little bit more or maybe a little bit more struggle. But apart from that, as I said, like I'm I'm thinking about bumping it up on rewatch rather than bumping it down. You know what I mean? A really, really great match. If there is a better TV match this year, it'll be one hell of a match. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so that was your number four, JP. Uh, And just to say that that's number five on the grapple top 10 for the month with an average of 4.42. So you're nearly up at a 4.5 average on that match. Like, so clearly, clearly liked by, and that's like, that's got over 400 votes. So that's a, that's a seriously robust number there. Like people clearly love that match. Um, my number three then, JP, is mm-hmm. a match that I, I'm pretty sure that I'm the high man on this match. Um, it's from All Japan. And we mentioned mm-hmm. him earlier. It's Kento Miyahara against um, Yuma Aoyagi on the 11th of February uh, for the Triple Crown Championship. Um, and I haven't heard 
much, if any, praise for this from people. Like it, it's on Grapple. It's got a four. It's just like it's four point not four average on on Grapple. So people are calling it a four star match. I have it at four point five. And I liked it even more the second time. Like I was, again, I'm kind of thinking, God, I could have had this in my top two for this month. If it wasn't for the month that was in it with the two really great matches that we're going to talk about in the next few minutes, I could easily have had this as my match of the month. Like a really, really great match. Um, it's it's the story of, like we rave, you particularly rave about Kento an awful lot on, on, on Spotlight, you know, and it's been well talked about how he's one of the best in the world. He's been top 10 in the world for the last few years. He has a formula for his big matches. He can effortlessly bang out the four-star matches at this stage. So I'm going to kind of focus on his opponent for this. And Aoyagi is a really interesting one. Um, his debut match in 2014 for All Japan was actually against Miyahara. So straight away, there's a nice little hook there and a little story. And this is his first big, big title shot at the Triple Crown Championship. It's his big moment to shine. And up till this in All Japan, he had pretty much been tagging with Miyahara all along and a member of his stable. Mm. And then in January, after Miyahara beat Jake Lee in January, um, Aoyagi actually came down to the ring and turned on him and attacked him. Um, and that's what sets this match up then. And he's very much someone that they see an awful lot in, I think, in All Japan. And we're kind of getting to the point where there's a new four pillars of All Japan. Now, I'm not trying to say that these guys are at the level of the, the, the four pillars of the 90s in all Japan. But there's a nice symmetry to, to the fact that they kind of have four homegrown guys at the top of the promotion again. Miyahara, Jake Lee, Nomura. And I would add Aoyagi now as, as the fourth guy in that group. And that's a really strong kind of basis for that promotion moving forward. And I just thought he, in real life and in storyline, I thought he grasped his opportunity with both hands. You know, like I just felt his performance was amazing. Like he, he basically the story of the match is that he works Miyahara's arm. Um, really early on in the match, uh, Miyahara tries to punch him and he inadvertently punches the ring post. And straight away, Aoyagi goes after that. So straight away, I'm delighted, JP. A bit of limb work in a match. <laughs> something, to, something to sink my teeth into in the early stages. Like there's nothing meaningless about the mat work in this we're straight into a story and i can sink my teeth into that a big long main event but there's something happening that you can focus on and the arm works really good like he does a knee drop off the top while holding the arm he puts a key lock on and he refuses to let go of it until the ref is counted to five every time he's in trouble in the match he goes back to this arm and tries to injure it more his demeanor you know it would be easy for a young guy like him to come into this match and be overawed by Miyahara because Miyahara is a really big personality, a big mm -hmm. presence. And it would be easy for a young guy in his first big match to get swallowed up by him and maybe, you know, not come across as well as he would have hoped. But like there's a swagger to him here. He's not intimidated by Miyahara one bit. He's determined to show he's on the same level. The fire he shows. And there's a bit of viciousness. As I said, like he straight away zones in on the arm and there's an injury. He's being a bit of a dick as well. Like at times he, he pulls back the the ring mats outside to expose the concrete. When Kento's on the mat, he's kind of dismissively kicking out at him and he's trying to, he's constantly trying to get him into strike duels and that kind of thing, arguing with the ref about whether his fist was closed. So there's, he shows personality. He's proving to the world that he's a capable main eventer. And as I said, in real life, he's doing that, but also in storyline, he's not overawed by the ace of the company in any way. And then his technical ability as well. Like, like some of the execution, we talked about Pax execution earlier. Some of the stuff he does in this match, there's, there's a sequence of rolling Germans he hits and mm. the pop of his hips is just sublime. Another point that he's, he's got the stretch plum on that, that, that Kawada made famous and he transitions from that into a key lock from an O'Connor roll and it just looks amazing. His strikes were really good. 
at one stage he throws a straight right hand at him that like if Shingo Takagi threw it, he'd be proud of it, you know. So I just thought this young guy coming into this match on every level that you could analyze a performance, he just knocked it out of the park, you know. And um, Miyahara was great. Like you wouldn't normally associate him with selling a limb very well, but he really sells the arm really well in this. Like there's there's a struggle. A big part of the Miyahara matches at this point is whether or not he can lock in that straight track, straight jacket German on somebody and put them over. And usually when he hits it, it's game over. So the, the story of his finishing stretches is whether he can actually get the hold on. And in this match, because the arm is injured, he's having serious trouble locking his arms around and getting him in position. Like at one point, he has to give up on it because the arm won't close over for him. At another point, Aoyagi is able to punch the injured arm to break the hold. And then it's only on the third attempt where it kind of Miyaharo shows that fighting spirit that he's actually able to get him over and execute the move and get the win. And I just thought it was a match that I came into with very little expectation the first time I saw it. I kind of thought maybe Miyahara would kind of dominate the younger guy and we wouldn't get a great match out of it. But like, I just thought for a guy stepping up to the plate and making himself in one night, I thought like there is no way this, like I'm nearly thinking he should jump ahead of Jake Lee in the queue at this stage to be the next champion because he just showed me so much in this match. And I just came away from it. Like if I was to pick out an individual performance of the month out of all the people we've watched wrestle in February, I nearly give it to him for the way he stepped up to the plate in this match and proved that he was on the same level as the main guy in the company, you know? Yeah, I, I can I can agree with with a lot of those statements. I think you're, you're slightly higher on it than me. I went four first time on this, and then I've been sort of umming and ahhing about 4.25. Um, and I think the reason why I may well have gone four, or may well that this had perhaps fallen under the, the kind of the radar is, we mentioned about tropes as well, and maybe that there are some people who feel that it was it, it, looking at this that maybe that this was just sort of big match Kento, yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. like a reg, regulation defence. He has it, they move on. But um, for this, I, I have to agree with you. I, I kind of viewed this as this is his first challenge, and it's the first chapter in a book of the yes. t- title challenges. And in some ways, you kind of have to view it with that of what are the things that they lay laying the groundwork for, for them to be able to sort of build on in the future as well, which you mentioned about the arm. I was kind of thinking to myself, are they going to play into that again when it comes into the, um, into the next match as well? Um, also at the same time, I mean, God, like the way he took that pile driver on the apron, like, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, I didn't really expect that. It didn't feel like that was going to be that that was necessarily going to be going to be part of it as well. Um, I so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I kind of enjoyed this slightly more than the Jake Lee match. But then I was slightly higher on the Jake Lee match than most because I kind of I don't mind Jake Lee as the kind of stoic gentleman mm. of, of, okay. of them there. And you mention about, but I can also see the reason that from a kind of charisma perspective, his world title win has to be one that he needs to really grit his way to. So it might take yeah. Jake Lee that bit longer. That's the better story to tell. Whereas with um, Ayagi, you can kind of tell the, sto- the story of this is a young guy who's got a hell of a lot of talent. And we can think of 
pushing him higher up the card. And then you've got a good storyline there with Jake Lee as well about kind of feeling about the rivalry. And so when you mention about they're looking for that four pillars, and that's always been all Japan's struggle, really, is who else can they have up there that are going to be able to match up with Kento Miyahara? And here you've got Ayo Aggie putting his hand up and saying, yep, I can do that. Because I like the heel turn he did in January. It yeah. felt like rather than someone doing a heel turn to be nasty and heelish, it was like, right, there's an opportunity here and I'm going to grab it. And as a result, that's how it came across. Like he's branching out. And by doing this, he's just sort of laying down a challenge to Kento at the same time. And Kento does that great job of generating sympathy for his opponent. I think, I mean, like you always worry about him swallowing at the same time, Miyahara, when he's generous, my God, he is generous. He will absolutely get people over. I, was thinking, like, I remember hearing WH Park saying that that's one of the reasons why he comes out first, is that he gets right. his big pop, he gets the big momentum, but he also wants that second wrestler not to be overshadowed by that. And so him doing that a little bit differently. And I've always enjoyed that about him primarily. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say, yeah, you, you're, you're slightly higher on it than me, but then this shouldn't be a match to slip. I mean, Christ, Miyahara had a good... Um, title match with Yoshi Tatsu. He had a very <laughs> exactly. good match with Yoshi Tatsu. So at this point, you kind of think like all of his title defenses are, are things that I want to see. And you know, and they've, uh, uh, this COVID is like come across as the worst time for all Japan because it was like all Japan really were kind of yeah. building this really interesting heavyweight roster, and they they've kind of had to like you know with some good imports as well, some interesting imports and interesting people who are talking about coming in there. Um, and so it, that's a bit of a shame, but I think with Yuma Ayogi, they're, they're really, they're definitely onto something. And I don't know what it is about Ken Miyahara, but those, ger- when he does his straight jacket Germans, there's always, it's always dramatic for me. I'm always yeah. like yeah. kind of find myself on tender hooks. And this time, like you mentioned about the arm as well, and there's always that sort of eternal struggle. And then as soon as he gets it cinched in and he lifts him up, and you can tell then Ayagi knows that it's over, and that's fine. Like Because like I said before, first chapter in a book, it's what does he learn from this and will do differently the next time in this main event. So rather like you mentioned about Hideki Suzuki and, and Nakajima, it's what that next chapter is. And that's half the job of it. That, that's the job of a wrestling booker and of, of a wrestling promotion. And, and the final little thing that I really liked was he refused the handshake after the match as well. So yeah. he, he kept up the little, the kind of dickhead personality as well. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. it's nice that they have this, this antagonist now at the top of the promotion. You know what I mean? Like he, 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 as you said, he elbowed his way to the top of the queue by attacking Miyahara after that match in, in January. And he's kept up that persona now. And I just feel that adds an extra kind of layer. I, I do find sometimes the, um, the top of the card in all Japan, it can be a little bit samey in terms of it's oh, Miyahara yeah. and a lot of big guys, but now you have this little spiky personality. Like he's not much bigger than a junior heavyweight, mm. but he's plucky. He's technically good. He's got an arrogance about him. And it just, it's a great little bomb to throw in the mix of everyone there. You know what I mean? And just yeah. mix the whole thing up. And it's it's really working out nicely for them. You've got those four homegrown guys. Mm. And then you've got the veterans. You've got Shuji Ishikawa. You've got Zuis. You've got Suwama. You've got the imports. They've now got a few of the Wrestle One guys in there as well. 
as you said, like th- there's a rescheduled champion carnival, I think going to be happening, hopefully in September, all going well with COVID-19. Mm. I'll really be paying close attention to that because suddenly there's matches there and there's interesting things. And it's all on the back of Miyahara. You know what I mean? He carried him through a lean couple of years. They've built people up around him. And that they're a really interesting promotion. And I'm hoping there's somebody, they're a promotion we can kind of shine a light on as the months go on uh, on this show as well, because it's, it's really interesting to me what's happening there at the moment, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 just to say, um, you know, with, with Aegi, he's got that crowd connection. You could hear... Yeah the slight dueling chance even though like you say he's the kind of dickhead heel but that's what kento's great at is doing the kind of arrogant tanahashi has always kind of done that to a much smaller slighter degree and miyahara's like a kind of exaggerate i mean obviously the comparisons with tanahashi always kind of feel so relevant with him and he's doing a kind of similar job to what um tanahashi had to do for so many so many years in those kind of mid-2000s but it's just a slightly amplified version of that kind of dickhead. And he, his facials, the facials that he pulls throughout matches. And, and he, he mm. so he's like a kind of whirlwind of emotions because then he'll look <laughs> pissed off. And, and a, a, a thing that I always mention about, um, about Miyahara as well, something to mention in it, it's just his changes in pace. There are points oh, where yeah, he yeah. just goes at it and it's that change of pace. You're like, Christ, what happened there? And then you find yourself kind of like, oh, okay, he gets you back in. When you think there's going to be that little lull, he'll do something, he'll get you straight back in, and then before you know it, the match continues. So, yeah, that, that, that's a, it's a quality I I always find very similar between him and Omega, where yeah. they can suddenly just hit the accelerator and go from a match being not much happening, and suddenly they'll just take off and go into fifth gear and it's like god almighty how, how can you just hit the accelerator so quickly you know what i mean mm-hmm. and as you said the personality the charisma the dynamic with the ref with wada yeah. the, the, the all japan ref where where they they kind of stopped doing it and i kind of miss it where where he'd be at the ring post and he'd be he'd have his opponent's neck kind of wrapped around the ring post and the only way the ref can break it is by catching him by the hair and basically shaking his head and i, I people said <laughs> they got sick of it i always enjoyed it i always just found it was like a fun little thing to throw into the match that you don't see happening like when do you ever see a, a ref get so physically involved in a match you know what i mean it's just just yeah. another nice little layer to his matches you know um, but anyway, back to our list, JP, and the way this has worked out is very, very nice. So we're going to your number three now. Um, mm. you, you might as well tell people what your three and two are, because my two then ties in nicely with that as well. Because it's, it, it, And what we'll do is we'll discuss both matches together, I think, is the best way of doing it. Yeah. So if you tell people your three and two on your list. So my three and two are two Zack Sabre Jr. and Will Ospreay matches. Um, the number three is the from the new new um, new japan new beginning in sapporo from february 2nd and the number two is the match from rev pro high stakes um and yeah it makes sense to kind of cover them together because so. they yeah. yeah they they you know obviously one leads on to the other one the the other one hadn't been announced until the first match the new new japan match had actually finished and got out of the way and i think originally there was another match I was going to have in here, but obviously when doing the rewatch going through it, I was like, well, I'm, I, I, it would be silly not to watch the, the match in Sapporo on February 2nd. And I wanted to include this because I just don't think it should be forgotten or overshadowed. Now I was at yeah. high, high stakes when we come on to that. But for me, this was a match 
that also laid a lot of the groundwork, particularly for the second match and the changes in strategy that that kind of that Osprey has to do, has to do in order for the match to kind of work. Because you don't want to be talking about them doing the same match that they yeah. that they kind of already have done. And this is a match that's gone global, isn't it? It's a match they've done in they've done have they done it in sixteen carat have they at all? Have they? Oh, I'm trying to think of the other times they've done these matches between them. I think it has happened Bola? in WXW. They've they've done it at I think they did PWG. They've done yeah. it at a mania weekend on one of those um, WWN super shows. I remember maybe 2016 or 17 off the top mm-hmm. of my head. They definitely did this match as well, a shorter version of it. Yeah, so it, it's the it's the big touring match. Like, like people talk about Marty and Osprey. Yeah. I think this is just just I think the, this is a better rivalry personally and a bigger one given the stage that they're wrestling on at the moment, you know. So it's, yeah, it's definitely the touring match for UK wrestling at the moment, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I agree with you with that. Like This, as a series, longer term is kind of more interesting. And it's probably because Marty hasn't been around. There was, you know, where he changed the character and it became much more of the kind of shtick Marty. Yeah, um, true. I could see him kind of coming back to kind of more saving himself for those bigger matches as well. And I, I, I'd look forward to those. But these ones here, in this first match, you can see this is a well-oiled machine. And you see it even more so in the second match as well. But, like, the theme very much for this one always seemed to be that, that Osprey's athletic, um, but Zach is smarter, and that Osprey's overconfident coming into this match. Like, he kind of feels that this is his time. That yes. He's had so many kind of close calls against Zach that he is going to go in there and win. And what he doesn't do is protect the neck to quote uh, um, Wu-Tang Clan. And what he <laughs> what what he does here is is that, like, by working the neck, which he does with that simple, like, whenever he does it, it's the way that he simply does it with the boots and he just does, does it with a simple twist. And it seems to be sort of somewhat of a game changer for it. Um, and I, I absolutely, I love, when watching this, it was just, you think of like a smooth watch you think of what those big matches are but this one because they're very much got the counter game down it's continually interesting and if you're going to have someone doing counter wrestling in the match Zack Sabre Jr. is the person for Mm. that and quite often at times I feel bad that you know Osprey is obviously he's very much more the showy wrestler and gets a lot of love as he should do because he's absolutely incredible but it is also at these moments you just remember the genius that is Zack Sabre Jr. And I was listening to your mixtape episode and one of the other ones is I was wanting to go back and I ended up having that in my mind when watching it, thinking of, he doesn't do a suicide plunger here, does he? Against like what he did against Brian Danielson um, <laughs> in front of like a hundred people in um, uh, in, in Coventry. Um, but here, like it's, it's the kind of canniness of it. He's like, the way that he would um he's sort of like the ring general stuff is coming into the mix so osprey hits the oscar he rolls out of the way Ah, the way that he works in the cobra twist in there his working in the figure four was great fun not because he didn't sit there and scream like a lot of people do and then try and roll over he's trying to lift up the leg which makes sense and then you've got goading osprey sorry Osprey's goading him into hitting him and then he'll do it and he'll get annoyed because obviously part of the weakness they always have with Zack Sabre Jr. is his temper 
So all this stuff is paying perfectly into the character aspects as well. And then when he wins, the crowd feels deflated. It's not that they're upset with the match, but they honestly, I think they thought they were going to see a title change. And they don't see it. And that's great heel work. And it's not because the match is bad or anything else along those lines. And all of it, I felt like when going on to the when going on to the second match, it it led so well into it that I kind of felt it would be wrong of me in a way to kind of leave it out. Because for me, they're kind of, you know, these these two matches, you know, rather like you think of the month that we'll talk about the month that, that Kenny Omega had, you think of the month that these guys had as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's it's not a match that lends itself to recapping or note taking. Mm. It, it's you know sometimes oh, you, you know you're going to be a, you know you're going to be on a podcast and, and you're taking a few notes. You yeah. want to have your bullet points ready for when you're talking about a match. With a match like this, you find yourself putting the pen down because mm. it's it's not a match with big spots. It's not a match with high spots. It's just as you you use the word fluid, like it's the pure fluidity of everything they're doing. It's just two guys who know each other inside out. There's counters to counters to counters at this stage. You know what I mean? It's really, uh, when you focus on it and concentrate on it, you see the little things they're doing where they're showing how familiar they are with each other all the time. You know, Um, I liked that even though Osprey didn't win, you could see evidence of him having progressed as a wrestler. Mm. He's able to do things now. Because he's so big, basically, he like, you know, when they wrestled in the US in 2016, 2017, Osprey was was a very small junior heavyweight. Now he can he can power out of these submission holes at times. You know what I mean? So there's times where his his sheer size gets him out of trouble against Zach, whereas before Zach would have had him tied in knots. Um, I loved you, you. You called it perfectly. The struggle over that figure four. It wasn't just mm. put on and they didn't just sit there in agony, as you said, for, for a prolonged period. There was struggle over it. It took ages before Osprey could get that leg over. And then he's trying to slap his way out of it. Zach is trying to slap Osprey in the face just to get out of it. Really, really good, really clever. It makes sense to do it that way. You know what I mean? And the fact that Osprey would be the one putting a figure four on, you know what I mean? That's a real kind of subversion of what you would expect these two guys to be doing. Like, like there's even a little bit of Osprey working Zach's leg. You would never have predicted that from this match. You would have expected Zach to be the one doing all the limb work. You know what I mean? So they're flipping things on their, on its head to keep it interesting all the time. And as you said, that spot where Zach takes the Oz cutter yeah. and rolls out of the ring, hugely important for this second match. And I think it's something yes. we, we can talk about when we talk about the second match again. You know what I mean? So if you want to go, like, because my number two as well, which really works out nicely, is, is the match from the UK then at high stakes. So... Um, we can go straight into talking about that if you like, JP. It, oh it yeah, was absolutely. On, yeah. It was Valentine's Day, which was a, a a lovely a lovely way for you to spend Valentine's Day with your good lady friend, bringing her to see Zach Saber Jr. against Will <laughs> Osprey in Rev Pro at High Stakes 2020, a match with an average on grapple of 4.63 with over 200 votes. So that's a seriously. Meltzer gave it five stars, um, four and a half for me. What did you go on this one, JP? I went 4.75. Totally fair. Yeah. Four four point seven five for this. I've seen people do five. I can get that. Like I, I would do you know what I hate to say it with this second match, do you know what? And I was there live, so there's a kind of live experience of it. And you mentioned it was actually the first time that I'd taken my girlfriend to a to a wrestling show. And she was kind of keen to come along. So it was like 
like just to see what this was like. And it was a great show to take her to because had a bit of everything. Had LA yeah. Park, Eddie Kingston earlier on, <laughs> yeah. Michael Okuel, Fantasmo. You had, um, you know, it was just really, really strong show that they put up. But, and I, you know, it's a point that we've mentioned on Spotlight, but the VOD quality. And at the beginning of this match, and that's the problem when you go straight from the New Japan match into rewatching this. Match, <laughs> yes, everything. Like, yeah. Oh, and it, and I have to say, it does take something away on the rewatch because really they does. set it up with that that lovely hard cam. Heard you mention it before. They've got this lovely hard cam. The ring nicely set up. You can see some of the fans there, and it's like, and we won't use it. And it's a shame, and it's actually to their testament that when I rewatch this. And it bothered me when I first rewatched it after it first came out because I wanted to see how good it was. And I was and, and I think I found myself quite upset about the the VOD. Whereas this time round, I was kind of going, right, I'm just going to watch the match, try to ignore it. I've seen lots of bad, badly shot wrestling shows before. This won't be any different. And to their credit of how good they are, they overcome that. Like once you're kind of watching the match and you're engaged and it's the stakes for this one because it does kind of feel from like where the previous match was when you're going into this second match it feels like this second match for me it has so much more in the way of stakes the atmosphere was red hot i don't know how much i don't always feel that entirely came across on the vod but i think even you can gather it was a hot crowd oh yeah, Um, yeah and it and it had that kind of real big event feel to it which they desperately needed as a company. But um, yeah, sorry, I'll let you go first. You, you go first, Jamesy, in terms of your, your breakdown of this one. How did you find it? Yeah, like it, it felt like I, I'm, I suppose on the night in question, I'm sitting at home. And, and you know the way sometimes you're sitting at home and w- with the way Brit Rest is at the moment, you mightn't even realize a show was going on. And I would say, especially with the likes of progress, sometimes you, you only realize maybe at five in the evening, God, there was a progress show today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas it, it, this felt like being back in 2016, 2017 again, where my timeline was alive. You know what I mean? A, a lot of my friends from Ireland were over at it. Uh, it was a full house. It was back to the good old days of Britress. And it was, as you said, it was a night that, that Rev Pro and that British wrestling badly badly needed after a couple of, of fairly lean years you know what i mean and particularly for rev pro you know um and the atmosphere does come across it definitely does and as i said the vod is poor there's no getting away from it but you still get the sense the crowd pops so big when they come out you know what i mean and my big takeaway from it and you mentioned that like zach getting overshadowed by osprey a lot and everybody talking about osprey being the greatest british wrestler of all time mm. whereas my own opinion would still be that zach is actually i'd still be a zach guy not, not to put down Osprey in any way, but I would just have Zach that slight bit ahead of him still at this point in their careers. I found that this match was a masterclass by Zach. It, mm. it, it was it was Osprey's night for sure, and obviously it's not a spoiler to anybody. Osprey wins the match and becomes a British heavyweight champion for the first time. Um, but you know, it it doesn't become the big moment it does without Saber putting in the performance that he does. You know what yes. I mean? And they're just he's just such. We talked about. Um, who was it earlier being an, about people being an asshole in a match? You know, about Ayo Yagi being a bit of an asshole in his match. Mm. Saber is just such a dickhead in this match. The minute he comes out behind from behind the curtain, he's jawing with the crowd. He's giving guys in the crowd a finger. He's aggressive. He's vicious. 
the best Zack Sabre Jr. to me is when Zack is a heel and he's tormenting somebody, basically. You know, he's doing all the little vicious. He's doing all the submission stuff that we know he can do. But then when he has a submission on, he's grinding his knuckles and his elbows into, into Osprey's back and his ribs and all that kind of thing. At mm. one point, he picks him up by the two ears. You know, it's nothing. It's a simple thing. But it's just everything he does is designed to hurt his opponent. You know what I mean? So mm. your sympathy for Osprey is building all the time. When he has him in a submission, he stretches him back by the nostrils. These little things, you know what I mean? And the New Japan commentary in the first match referred to Zack at one point as this relentless monster who kept coming, kept putting him in submission holes. And I really felt that held true into the second match as well. He, he was this monster who kept coming at Osprey, kept putting him in these various conundrums. And it was Osprey's job to get out of them and to solve them, to get the win in the match. You know what I mean? And I just, I felt he set up, he was the guy giving the assist to Osprey and Osprey was going to get all the glory for scoring the winner in the match. You know what I mean? If it was a football analogy, but like, I just thought Zach was amazing in this match. Uh, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, you know, the big thing that they did brilliantly was number one, they didn't just go out and have the same match twice, which yes. some wrestlers would do. You know what I mean? Maybe less talented people, less conscientious wrestlers might have the same match with a slightly different finish. They used the match 12 days before to set the groundwork and then they built up the blocks on that from there. And the big, big spot we mentioned is, is when Osprey hits the os cutter on Zach mm. and Zach goes to do what he did in the first match and he tries to roll out of the out of the ring. But this time Osprey's on the ball and he stops him and he drags him back into the ring and it brings us into the finishing sequence after that. So they tell the story that Osprey made mistakes in his first match went back and watched the video, learned from his mistakes, came back on night two and got the win because of that. Simple, logical storytelling. If this was an MMA fight, that is exactly what you would do as a fighter. You would go with your, you would, mm. and they even brought his trainers out to tell that story. Yeah. And the commentator was good. They were, you know, I'm not always a fan of Rev Pro commentary. They were great here in the way that they kind of told the little story that, that Will flew out of Japan as quick as he could after losing that match, went back to his old trainers in the London School of Lucha Libre. They watched the tape. They looked for things he could improve on. You're telling the sports-based story. It's simple. It's effective. But it's really, really good. And it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's nothing out of the ordinary. But when you get so much nonsense in wrestling now, when you see it peel back into a simple thing where they treat it like a sporting event, it's just really good. You know what I mean? It's perfect. Um, so go on, JP. Tell me the live. As I said, that, that, that's the tape perspective of it. Give me the live perspective. Or had you had too many beers at that point? Do you remember? Oh, any of it? The, the, <laughs> the, the session in the village that night was mighty. James, it really was. And, and the village was milked and Bethnal there, Green that night. There, were, there was no cows being milked that night, honestly. You're walking back, you didn't have a nice view of the Cumber Mountains either. That's a very Warford <laughs> reference, which we'll leave in there as well. Um, I, 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 like, yeah, all of what you said, I, I'm, I'm completely in agreement with. I mean, as live, it was completely electric. It was, I, okay. I went back and listened to the review that we did. It was absolutely electric, but a lot of it had kind of passed me over with the kind of minutiae of the match, I must confess, because I was completely invested as a fan. So I was there watching this and I was so invested. You kind of, like you mentioned about Zach, that you can't have this match without Zach. You need that great villain. And he is more than happy to play that villain. And the great thing about that villainous character is it's really just 
it's kind of, let's say, an extension of himself. It's an extension of his style. It makes sense yes. for him to be that type of villain as well because he has to be clever because he hasn't got that physical strength. And so, you know, to think about Triple H being cerebral, and it's like carrying a sledgehammer and lifting weights is not cerebral. Working on counters and getting out of submissions, <laughs> that's, that's cerebral. That's real cerebral thinking. And there was a point as well that I thought his ring movement is really odd because when I think he hits the Oz cutter, it looks like he's wildly out of position. And sometimes when I'm watch, when I've watched these Zach matches, you think it is that, but in fact he kind of moves at strange di- strange angles and strange lines, yeah. so he gets yeah. himself entirely into place. But it's not what you're expecting, so it kind of looks different, and you're thinking, oh, is he going to be able to hit it? And it kind of adds maybe that little bit of extra drama yeah. onto some yeah. of those some of those yeah. moves as well. And then I was trying to think of what were the things that he did differently from the last match, and I found one of the things that Osprey had done, the thing that made it work. It's for a lot of it, he's staying on his feet. It's like he's decided he can't go to ground because if he gets the Cobra twist in, it's pretty much yeah. game over. And they do that spot and he's closer to the ropes that time as well. So yes. it's like he's yes. been thinking about how that. he's, yeah. how is he countering these? And and here, it's it's very much that he's he's kind of, he's changed that strategy. It, it, it worked in the trainers. And you think about promotion, you know, wrestling a lot, it uses belts for its storylines, but it never uses the sports aspect of being a exactly, champion exactly, to tell those yeah. stories. And it's the simplest story, and it's the most easily understood story that you can have. This person has a title. I want this title. There may be a series of what my motivations are in order to get there, but that's fundamentally the story that you're telling. And here, there was like, uh, they built it up in the in the, the commentary for the, um, the new beginning match they had, where they said about how Zach only comes to England if he's contractually obliged to do it, whereas <laughs> yes, Osprey yes. wants to go there to defend the honour. Yeah. And you're going, that's a very small thing, but that's great. Um, yeah, this is... I know people who went five for it at the time. There are people who may not want to go, who were there live, who may not want to re-watch it. I think one of the biggest things I take from it live is that the pubs were very busy afterwards because people wanted to have a drink and kind of diffuse <laughs> and talk about these amazing matches they'd just yeah. seen. And in some ways, that's as good a compliment as you can kind of give it. Um, I know if we're judging it on on the star rating of how my head was hurting the next day, that was definitely <laughs> around 4.75. For Joe, it was closer to six. He'd gone full melt. <laughs> and Benno as well. And Karen. Many happy photos from that night. Uh, um, <laughs> it was it, it was a nice that Brit rest needed for, for, for all those reasons. Yeah. Like And like even though the sound is bad, that mm. pop from the crowd when he wins is like it, it's one of it, one of the great Brit rest pops uh, oh, yeah. of this new Brit rest revival. It, it's almost like everybody in that room was breathing a sigh of relief that that Brit rest, in fact, is not dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Contrary to what our friend Richard Benson might say, you know, that there is life in the old <laughs> dog yet. You know what I mean? It's just it just felt like everybody from the wrestlers to the to to Andy Q. Andy Boy Simmons on commentary, everybody in that room needed this moment and needed this match. You know what I mean? And, and it took the two greats, the two greats of all time of British wrestling, in my opinion, coming back to your call to do it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And like, and then like we can't talk. I, th- I think sometimes you have to tie the post match in with the match. Because oh, yeah. It's part of it. It's part of the feeling. It's part of the feeling you guys got when you turn to each other on the way out and go, let's go to the pub and celebrate because the post-match is amazing. And it's the best of Will Ospreay. You know, he, he cuts this promo that's 
it's not polished, it's not rehearsed, it's not, it's, it's Will Ospreay being Will Ospreay, and Will Ospreay is all heart. He may be all brains, but he's all heart and he's all yeah. good intention. And I do feel like he is a he is a person who has good intentions, especially when it comes to wrestling. And he comes out there, he calls out, you can tell it's not rehearsed because he calls out Giselle Shaw, who's just won the women's title. And he calls out Michael Oka, who's just won the junior title. And it's clearly not rehearsed because it takes ages for them to actually come out. It's like they had to scramble to find them in the backstage area to get them come out. And it's like, this is his moment. It's him becoming the junior British junior heavyweight champion. It's a reset for Rev Pro with three new, young, hungry, talented champions standing in front of the crowd. You know, it feels fresh. It feels new. It feels exciting. They feel like three people who can have fresh matches. You know what I mean? When fresh matches in Britress are a rarity at the moment. And as I said, it just felt like the night that Britress showed, it still had a pulse and wasn't quite dead yet. And it's just the pure heart of Will Ospreay. And the pure, you could accuse him of a lot of things, but you could never accuse him of not doing the right thing when it comes to wrestling. And, and you feel like oh, yeah. and Andy Q saying that on commentary about him, he would be back every week defending it if he could. He would. He would do insane things like wrestle in Japan mm-hmm. on a Monday and be back in your call on a Friday if he was able to. You know what I mean? That's the mark of the man. You know what I mean? And it's fitting that he was the guy to kind of prove and uh, you know that, that, that wrestling is still alive in Britain and there still is a future for us. Yep. Yep. I can wholeheartedly uh, agree with those statements. And the fact that it happened in like, and it's because obviously, how you would you feel of them as a, as being imports? Are they primarily New Japan wrestlers? And in some ways, what was great about this show is it wasn't a show being sold on New Japan talent as quite often these big York Hall shows can be. They are New Japan talent, but people obviously recognise as well that big important parts of their career go through Rev Pro. In Osprey's case, it was the direct link through meeting Okada, working his way into New Japan. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's a Tokyo mate, Tokyo Dome main event in two years. And you're going down you're going down that road as well. So in terms of the importance for Rev Pro, it kind of squares the it kind of completes the circle, doesn't it? Of of you getting it onto to Osprey. There's this kind of good five-year storyline they've been telling with him certainly your four-year storyline they've been telling with him and that and the title in there as well and losing it from two years before and you mentioned about like the marty like you had that touring match as well this is very much the feud that toured and it's it's the feud but they're good enough as we've said before they're good enough to change those matches up can't recommend these these matches high enough and in particular that high stakes one yeah, and and you called it great. What if people are listening and they want to watch that match back? Watch the one from Japan first because you would yes. take so much. Like I, I would have had the twelve day. I was actually probably about two weeks by the time I got to watch the high stakes one on VOD. Mm. And if you watch it with this with the match from Japan fresh in your head, you take so much more from it. You know, uh, as we said, him stopping the rollout happening, him struggling with all his might every time he gets in a submission because he knows. If Zach catches him, he's done. You know what I mean? All those little things, the learned psychology, they call it, you know, from, from one week to the next. Yeah. It's, it's just really well done. It's a great, as I said, put those two matches together and it's a great piece of business. The way you build one on top of the other and then you have the big happy ending as well. It's just really, really well done. And as I said, if people haven't watched them, these are must-see matches because I, I think that high stakes one for a lot of people. Like, I, I think a lot of that high grapple rating may be people coming out of your call, logging into to the grapple app on a high. <laughs> 
and keying in the five stars. I think that used to happen a lot with the big OTT matches as well. We'd go straight on and lash in the five stars. Oh, the yeah. Kind of. But that's the way it is. And it's interesting to have that. It's great that you were on this show um, mm. to get the live perspective because it does, it adds another layer to it as well. Being there and that whole celebration after it adds so much to the match as a package. So, yeah, just really great bit of business. But between the two greats, I would say, of British wrestling, you know what I mean? And well earned by the two of them. Yeah. So, JP, um, we've come to the big moment. And again, we're in agreement. We're, we're very harmonious. It must be the water for the blood in the two of us, JP. We've, exactly, yeah. This has flowed very, very well. We both have the same match for the match of the month. I let you do the honours and tell the listeners which match we've gone for. I don't think it'll be a major surprise to anybody. Oh, no. It's the um, Kenny Omega and Hangman Page versus the Young Butch match from AEW Revolution on February 29th. I went five stars on this first time. I rewatched it. I am sticking with the five stars. Oh, good man. Um, no fear. I no. I, I I looked at this and like having watched it and then looking at all the notes beforehand. It's I don't know. In some ways, it feels like a perfect number one match to have on a list like this because yeah. it has all of a lot of the aspects that that we kind of. That, that we that make great matches but at the center of it is this kind of real genuine kind of storyline and heart and emotion at the center of it and it's and it's the storyline that every single person in the match needed needed and it's worked and it's made a massive difference overall to the company like we said earlier on with Kenny Omega and Pack getting that match out of him this one as well this is when you're kind of thinking, this is best bout machine. This is New Japan Kenny Omega. This is Omega having to work big matches in high stakes situations. And I think he thrives under that kind of pressure. And I think he needs that kind of pressure. And if left to his own devices, he can yeah. do the silly stuff. Because I think we have the Nakazawa match that comes up in the month. But that's kind of fine because it exists in the kind of empty um, arena era. I I said at this time, and I'd be interested to know what you think about it. Like, for me, this might be the best tag match. I'd say the best tag match in North America that, that that ever has been. And I know that's a high bar. And there's probably some great Midnight Express and um, Fantastics match that I'd need to go back and see. But certainly, looking at it with 2020 eyes, this is kind of like the tag match that really sets the bar. And it has all those big spots and there's so much to go through on this. So, yeah, James, can you think of a better tag match than this? But a US tag match? Well, I, I remember people started saying that mm. because Meltzer said it. And, mm. you know, when, when Dave says something, you get extreme reactions where half the people mm. agree with him wholeheartedly and everyone else thinks he's crazy. And I <laughs> hadn't watched the match and I saw that opinion coming up on Twitter. And I was shaking my head and I was thinking, ah, Dave, like, come on, you know, like, you, you don't need to over exaggerate and give, put that much hyperbole behind these matches. And we all joke about his friendship with the with the elite and Kenny and all that and how much he bigs them up. But then I went to watch the match and it, it's a definitive, very definitive statement. And I would need mm. to go and watch some other stuff back before I would say it for sure. But it's I don't hate the but put it this way, I don't hate the opinion anymore and it's not an opinion that I look at now and say that was ridiculous because nothing comes to mind there's nothing that I immediately say god that was better but the one that always comes to mind for me is a match I really love was Benoit and Jericho 
against Triple H and Austin from Raw. The, the, the night that Triple H did the, did the big quad injury. And like, I remember watching that match back a few years ago. That is a seriously, seriously good match. It's an amazing mm. match. Uh, for me, that would be up there. As you said, there's probably lots of great stuff from the 80s. So I, I, it's not something I would definitively say, but at the same time, I don't argue too strongly with people who say it. And as I said, you know, and I went into this match, when I heard that from Dave, I went into this match kind of pissed off about it. <laughs> and probably meaning to be harder on the match than I should have been. And it still blew me away. So I overcame Dave's opinion almost, and it, it won me around with how good it was. You know what I mean? And I think the first stuff we have to talk about, because you, you take it for granted that these four guys will give you a, a state-of-the-art athletic match. You know what I mean? Mm. You get the big moves. You get a great tag team match. If there was no storyline, you'd get a really good high-flying, state-of-the-art, modern PWG-style match. You take that for granted. That's going to happen. As you said, it's the character work and the storytelling that really pushes it over the edge, you know. And as you said, everybody that went into this match came out of it enhanced. Each of them had a distinct role in the match and each of them had their own story to tell. But what I also think is really good about the matches, even if you weren't watching Dynamite every week, even if you'd never watched Being the Elite, because everybody played their role so well and because they told their story so well, you got it. Because I don't watch Being the Elite. It's not something I'm interested in watching. I watch bits and bobs of Dynamite. I'm not a person who sits down and watches Dynamite from for, for the full two hours every week. I, I generally tend to pick matches or good promos if I hear about them. So I wouldn't have been well up on the storyline behind this before I went into the match. But I got it. I understood what they were because the commentary was so good and because the four wrestlers did so well. Like Paige goes into the match. And you get straight away that he's angry and confused and feels underappreciated by everyone else in the elite and wants to do his own thing. And you get that straight away because he goes in and he spits in Matt's face and targets his bad back in the first couple of minutes. So if you knew nothing about these guys, you straight away get it. Adam Page is angry. He has this thing, especially with Matt Jackson. And there's 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 bad feeling there. And the way Kenny approaches the match is he's much more measured and even tempered. He doesn't particularly have ill feeling towards the books, but he's a competitive animal and he absolutely wants to win this match cleanly in the middle of the ring. He wants to defend his tag titles. He's a proud champion. And again, in the first few minutes of the match, uh, Hangman goes to get the uh, a table and he's, he's thinking about putting the books through a table and Kenny stops him. So straight away, you understand where Kenny's coming from. He wants to win the match, but he doesn't necessarily want to cripple his opponents or, or, or injure them badly. You know, uh, Matt Jackson's whole demeanor in the match, like he's you mm. straight away, he's spoiling for a fight. He's much more uh, animated than Nick is. Uh, Nick is kind of less overtly angry. And at times he's the peacemaker coming in, trying to calm his brother down. So just in the way they carry themselves and their demeanor. They're telling us what we need to hear. And you don't have to be somebody. There probably are things in there for the seasoned viewer and for the person who watches being the elite. But there's enough there on what they do in the match that you get the story straight away. And that's really good wrestling for me, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Complete agreement with you on that totally. And I I think as well, we take the bucks for granted, certainly, don't we? Um, oh, yeah. That, that, that that's part of the thing that I kind of get from this as well, like to a degree. And and, and we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it as well. There've been times I've gone, oh, young bucks. Oh. And you kind of forget that these, you know, they are responsible for these. And it's almost like this is its own little subgenre of itself of tag team wrestling, of these kind of tag teams. Um, But it's what they do. And it's also what people want. But what they've managed to do, and you mentioned there with, with Matt Jackson, 
like because quite often Nick is the more spectacular. He is. I mean, like you mentioned, fluid. Obviously, with the four of these four guys all know each other so well, it is just like continuous motion for half an hour, and then when they announce half an hour, it's just before the end of the match. And you're like, Christ, half an hour. Yeah. And Lies it doesn't fit. Absolutely flies by for it as well. And what they, you know, that the, they themselves, the Bucks, it, it, like Matt Jackson's character work on this because the match kind of kicks it. You've got some really nice stuff with Nick Jackson and Kenny Omega kind of doing exhibition wrestling. The kind of stuff that we, you know, that they've done before, like in comedy matches. I think I've seen them even do it, kind of against each other, where they do all really sort of nice stuff, but there's nothing hard hitting. And then when you get Paige and, and Matt Jackson in there, it's a completely different kettle of fish. They're spitting at each other, you know, they're they're on top with the kind of fists. And you mentioned there about everyone plays their role and all these different dynamic dynamics in here as well. And that kind of ties into the fact of all the counters and the spots being cut off in between. There's a great one when Kenny's doing the kind of um, Terminator um, and he's going to do the dive across the ropes. And I think it's Matt Jackson that kicks him just as he's about to dive over. Yes. And he comes over and it's it's a fine line because if you do that wrong, that goes horribly wrong yeah, or it looks bad. Yeah. It's either one or the other. It either looks really bad or it's just it goes badly wrong and he's injured. And instead, they get it kind of completely perfect for it. And this, like, tag team matches, I know it sounds really silly. Like, I'm, maybe you're the same. I'm kind of raised on watching a lot of big tag matches, particularly watching WCW videos. If you've watched things like, is it Starcade 89 with the Iron Man contest or is it Starcade 88? I forget. But, like, I'm kind of raised on watching these big tag teams and tag teams as kind of main events. And one of the things that bothers me about tag matches is if they're dull, because you kind of think, well, you should be doing quick tags in and out. Therefore, yeah. it should be continuous motion. You should be working on your opponent. Well, you've got no fear of that not happening here because they get all of that stuff on there as well. And the Bucks subtly play up to the heel stuff but they don't become oh, yeah. heels for the match. It's nothing silly. It's almost like they're annoyed, but you know that in reality, they're delighted because it's added spice to the match. And it makes Paige, who is like the big project of the match, if you think yes, long term. exactly. He's the big project and he's the one who's getting over on this. They're already over. Kenny's already over. Yeah. It's about getting it's Paige over. Yeah. It's his night. And... And it's great because some of the promos are going like, we found you, you're a jobber and ring of honor and all of this stuff. And they played it in. And, yeah. and, and, and it's the idea of, yeah, and we're going to make a main eventer out of him. And we're going to do this. And Joe said on the last spotlight how much he kind of missed seeing Adam Page when watching him at, um, on Double or Nothing. And I was kind of reminded by this as well. Oh, it's, I don't know how you feel about some of the spots though, Jamesy. My God, there are some spots in this match. There are some moments all throughout this. Where do, where do you start with it? Oh, yeah. I, 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 there's a few pivotal ones in particular. Mm-hmm. And, like, the biggest pop of the night is the the golden trigger spot. And you talked about the Bucks being heelish. Oh. Like, when you think about them doing the, doing the golden trigger on Kenny Omega, like, that's – when you think about that, number one, their beef isn't with Kenny. 
they, they have this thing going with Paige. So the ill feeling is towards Paige, but they kind of pick on, pick out Kenny, who's kind of poor, innocent Kenny, and they do the golden trigger, which is a real low blow, really. Like when you think about it, it's, it's a reminder of his relationship with Ibushi and the fact that they're no longer together and all that kind of thing. A really, really heelish moment from them. And then the genius of it is Kenny kicking out at one. And yeah. the crowd, because he sees red then, and now he's angry and he's pissed off. And he's like, what the hell are these guys doing to me? And the the I would say nearly, apart from the finish, the biggest pop of this match is him kicking out at one. And I felt mm. that in itself is another step in the rehabilitation of Kenny Omega in the company. Because he has the crowd is so behind him at that point. He's such, they've made him such a massive baby face. You know what I mean? And you could see him going back to a title run based off that moment. You know what I mean? You, you you remember that this crowd loves Kenny Omega and the pop he gets from that little moment is unbelievable. Um, and there's there's the fine detail as well. You know, it's not just a spot face fest. Mm. Like Matt goes after Kenny. They play back to the, we just talked about Kenny being in the brutalizer for three minutes from Pac at the end of the Iron Man match. And when he comes out, he strapped his shoulder up to, shoulder up to, to play off that injury. And at one point, Matt goes after that injury. And again, Really good psychology. What you would do if you were in a fight, you would go after the injury. You know what I mean? And Kenny's arm is so injured that he can't execute the one-winged angel. So you're getting the kind of fine detail selling that nerds like me want from matches. So there's everything. If you watch wrestling for character work, there's stuff in here for you. If you watch wrestling for high-flying and spots, there's tons of that in here. If you're like me and you like good psychology, logic, fine detail, good selling, it's in there as well. You know what I mean? The fact that they go after Matt's bad back yet again and Matt oh. sells his back so well. You know, a two-year injury storyline at this stage that he's been selling this back. Like, if we talk about greatest of all time tag teams, if the Midnight Express were doing that, we'd be raving about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. A two-year-long injury storyline. But why don't we give the Bucks credit for it? Why don't we call the Bucks the greatest tag team of all time? Because they're doing all the things that those guys did, as well as being able to cater to the modern audience. You know what I mean? So it, it's just, mm. it's stellar stuff all around. And the, the, the only reason I don't go five on this is the one moment I really hated in the match was just after attacking Kenny's shoulder, Matt kind of loses his temper and he goes after the shoulder and Nick has to come in and calm him down and Matt does the staring at the hands thing and that just it, oh, it just right. it, it took me out of only for a minute or two but it took me out of the match for us because it reminded me of the Gargano Champa stuff now unless that's some kind of a meta piss take of those WWE matches maybe that I don't get that has something from the being the elite that that I that, that that I don't understand being an old man or something like that. It did take me just the, the hand staring. I thought, God, that's a very jarring reminder of those Gargano Champa things and the silly kind of over the top emotion that was in them. And I, I did take the quarter star off for that because if they hadn't done that, this was five stars for me for sure. You're a brutal marker, honestly. <laughs> core, core of a star, all that work put in. It's like, yeah, it's good, but it's not quite good enough. Um, I, 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 I'm incomplete. Like, I, I mean, I went five, but I'm in complete agreement with you. Like, in terms of, like, you mentioned, I was looking back at my previous notes from when uh, when we first reviewed the show, and I was like, mm. wild spec, wild spectacular spots, great drama and storytelling, complex characterization. You play to the crowd. Pacing out as it didn't drag, out of this world com- chemistry, complete crowd com- investment, logic behind character motivations, big time stage. And you yeah. kind of think those components that you put in, plus then you put in like just amazing work and work that isn't like if you go through the first 15 minutes of this match, there's 
spectacular bus. There's the buck stuff is generally spectacular, but it's not the big buck stuff. No, they it's not. No, no. It's they restrained. It is restrained, and they pace it out. And when they start to do the um, indie taker to page on the on the ramp and things like that, then it becomes bigger. Then the Northern Lights, the trio of suplexes, gets oh, that yeah. bit bigger in there as well. You mentioned about the selling of the back, which, if I'm right in thinking, he started selling that back to prove that he couldn't sell. So in the time he's been doing this, he's been selling this like he is effectively like he's a con man and it's like part of some math i don't know if you've ever seen the film the prestige um, no, no. christopher nolan they talk about someone who, who basically pretends to be like a very old man but it's a con trick and they're always sort of bent over like that and matt matt jackson does that all the time to kind of prove the point that he can sell which is very clearly the case that yeah, yeah. he can do and it's amazing and it plays in there was at one point the just kidding spot from marty that uh, hangman page does yes um, yeah which was and again that's not that's stuff that we're gonna get that's not stuff like you put down somebody to watch this match they're not gonna get that but the match doesn't lose anything through you not getting that those are the kind of little east they're the little bits in there for the for the people who are following a lot of the storylines as well um the use of the one winged angel from um from page was was yeah. a great moment in there as well and then you know, to sum it all up, it's not like they all go in and shake hands, which I think he would have lost something from that if they had gone in there and done that. Instead, and they never were going to do that. It made, you know, this is a storyline that is really, let's face it, it's kind of at the beginning of where it could go. Mm, and there's exactly. so many. There's time, like, yeah. And there's time on their side to do it. And I think part of the reason they've gone, to, they went to the stadium stampede matches. Maybe that blood and guts one. They might have been thinking of doing the turn there. And right. I'm thinking, yeah. you don't need to turn for a very long time here. You're like you've got the crowd. There, there are some great things you can do in the meantime with this as as well. In the mean, uh, there are some great things that they can do in the meantime with this. Um, it was like AEW needed that big amazing match that kind of defined them and if anything like and i I, like i've said i'm a big fan of tag team wrestling and if that's going to be the route they go down of like we're going to offer you tag team wrestling on a different kind of level then great because i think if you're going to do that i'd like to see i don't know let's say team moxley and cody i don't know and you get two big kind of you get two big stars teaming up to take on these teams this and then you've got the what were the revival in there as well. There's so many different directions they can go with this. And I think this match kind of completely, for me, it set them as like, right, when they're talking about the great AEW matches, this is, for me, it feels like this is going to be the like the absolutely first real properly great match that they've had in, in the company. Oh, yeah. It's it's the first classic match, I would say. Yep. Uh, like Benno said, I, I think that uh, say that, that Cody against Dustin Rhodes match was mm. great in the moment. But when you go back on it, you kind of think, God, it was really an in-the-moment match. Whereas I watched this match again for this podcast. And, and you know, I, I found bits in it that I hadn't even seen the first time, you know. Mm. And it's, the, it, it's their ability to do subtle things and to exist in a world remember when we were talking about Walter Devlin Star and that kind of thing shades mm. of gray not everyone is 100% correct in this but everybody feels that they're 100% correct and like how many times have WWE done the whole 
uh, tag team partners that can't coexist storyline. You know what I mean? And it's such a trope and they do it in such a heavy handed way that, you know, it's coming a, mo- a million miles away. And then you have this match here where, where you know, Page and Omega are such a good team that they can beat the Young Bucks, you know, widely recognized mm. as the tag team in the world. And then after the match, you have that moment where Page teases just for a second that he's going to hit yes. the buckshot lariat on, on Omega. But then he kind of thinks the better of it. They, they kind of, their eyes meet and the moment is forgotten again. And it's just that little reminder oh. that it might come, it might not come. Maybe Omega will be the one to turn on. You don't know what way it's going to go. You know what I mean? Whereas when WWE put two big stars together, you know what's going to come. Within yeah. a month, they'll have broken them up. They're putting them together to break them up. Whereas in this situation, they're putting these guys together to tell a story and to make everybody, like everybody comes out of that, that match a bigger star. Page kind of they started badly with him in the company and like you know him being the first guy to challenge for the title didn't land correctly now he feels like a star again he felt like a star in the stampede match last weekend mm. you know what I mean he felt like he was back Omega's rehabilitation as a main eventer was completed by this match those two matches he had this week was a reminder that god he really is one of the best guys in the world the books they can still put on a five-star classic you know what I mean so everybody comes out of it enhanced so what more do you want from a wrestling match? As I said, every type of wrestling fan can get something from this match. And it's just it's just a really, really, really great all-round wrestling match. And and will be a lot of people's match of the year, I would imagine, mm. when we come to the end of, uh, of this particularly truncated year, albeit. I think it still will be up there. Like, like it's got a 4.77 average on Grapple. I'll have to check. I, I can't remember from last month. It's up there with those matches from Wrestle Kingdom as the match of the year so far on Grapple. Yeah. It is. And I think, you know, when you're looking at sort of the month of February, you realise the kind of year that we were on for. And yeah. that, and this match kind of standing out as well. But we combine it with the matches that we've had in January that you went that, that you spoke about with Benno and this one. And it's like, imagine in a non-COVID world, <laughs> what we'd be having. We'd be, yeah. we'd be building up to a G1, wouldn't we, really, at this point? We'd be that, yeah. that's the position Somewhere we'd G. be in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, I'm depressed now. I shouldn't have mentioned that story. <laughs> well, well it, it's a very, very good segue into just mm-hmm. looking at the rest of the Grapple Top 10. Like, look at the matches in this Top 10 that we didn't even consider. Like, there's mm-hmm. two really good Shingo matches. Um, there's the match against, like, we didn't even think about putting, even in our honourable mentions, Shingo Tatagi against Tomohiro Ishii, number seven on the Top 10, an average of 4.38. Shingo oh, against Goto. Yeah, Shingo yeah. against Goto at number 10, 4.2 average, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like, God, what a month, really. You know what I mean? Um, you have some honourable mentions there as well, uh, JP. Uh, and in particular, th- there was a match that you had originally slated for your top five. And that yes. you kind of pulled out I- in favour of the Osprey Sabre match. Just talk a little bit about that match. Yeah, and it was the... And it's not because it's a bad match. But hmm. it was the Hiromu Ta- um, Takahashi versus Ryu Lee match. And... I was watching it again and first time round I'd gone four and a half and I kind of thought, uh, you know, and I'd gone back and my first kind of hint that maybe it wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be was I couldn't really remember anything of it. And I was thinking I've gone four and a half here and I can't really remember anything. There's probably a clue that I'm going to need to go back and rewatch it. And I rewatched it and it's, it's good. Don't get me wrong. But it's an exhibition match, is how I felt about this yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And the result was never in doubt. And 
the drama effectively is really just built around the Phoenix Plex. Outside of it, it kind of feels like, and it's not to say, you know, there's been a lot of Ryu Dragon Lee matches. In, it, it's not like they've never been bad, but they've not kind of reached the peaks that the rest of the junior division has done. And for me, when watching it, it kind of, it was, it was good, but I'd gone from a four and a half down to a four on this. Oh, wow. Okay. And it, and it wasn't just to say it was bad, but I thought, I don't know. I just wasn't invested. And I thought this feels like he's a very good opponent for him to bring in afterwards. Cause it's someone obviously he knows very well. And there's already the ingrained storyline that ties in with Hiromu's injury, but that's really outside of it it feels like it's a junior match and maybe because it was thirds from the top on there and really maybe if this was a main event and they'd gone out there in a main event capacity that might well have added something a bit more to it i i I don't know um but yeah so i ended up dropping it out for those reasons um how did you feel about it as a match no totally valid reasoning yeah uh, i had it at 3.75 at the time uh, and on rewatch i kind of felt I, i'm kind of glad you took mm. it out of, of the top five because i don't like kind of having to give out about a match that someone's chosen yeah but um yeah at 3.75 and you hit the nail on the head there are matches that i watch now and i think to myself if i watched if i think about this match in three months time will i remember anything in it mm. and i'm finding with a lot of modern wrestling that is really is the case. And this was exactly it. I said to myself at the time, I won't remember any of this. And lo and behold, when you brought it up, I had to go back and watch it because I literally yeah. couldn't think of any one spot in it. Um, and the other thing about it is Dragon Lee is a very bizarre wrestler to me. Like it's about 12 months ago. It was just before the best of super juniors last year that he suddenly decided he was a Shibata tribute act. And yeah. I never, I never understood like, if it was a wrestler that Shibata had trained or a wrestler he had prior history with, I would say, Grant, I understand. You know, it's actually a nice hook for a wrestler to have. Mm. But why is this Lucha guy from Mexico suddenly a huge fan of Shibata? You know what I mean? And his he, his his wrestling style is so far removed from what Shibata did. Like Shibata was the serious wrestler and he's a kind of a, a, a spotty guy from Mexico. It just, it just never sat well with me. Him suddenly deciding... He's got really good forearms when, in fact, his forearms are kind of terrible. Him suddenly deciding he does hesitation drop kicks. Him doing all these running knees in his matches. It just never sat well with me. And I find myself watching his matches and kind of just getting annoyed by them at this stage. Because nobody on commentary has ever explained it. Sometimes you hear them say, well, he Mm. spent a week in the L.A. dojo with Shibata. And that's like, okay, fair enough. But is that suddenly grounds for him to suddenly reinvent himself as a wrestler and change his style completely? It just never sat well with me. And um, as you said about the Phoenix Plex, if they had made more of the Phoenix Plex, like for me, the whole match should have been built around the Phoenix Plex. Mm. They should have been teasing that even if they didn't feel safe doing the move, they should have teased it a lot of times. And that should have been the, you know, they, there was an obvious hook for the match that they could have told a story around. And they kind of, they teased it a couple of times, but it was never a big thing in the match. You know what I mean? And, and I just felt, as you said, an unmemorable match. Like it, it, when you're watching it, lots of it is athletically spectacular and impressive, but it's not a match again. Like, you know, I'll go back to it in three months time again, and I'll probably have forgotten the whole lot again, you know? So as I said, bit of a disappointment. Um, mm. Any other honorable mentions, JP from the month? Yeah, there was a couple, uh, 
the the other one I had, and I kind of mentioned it earlier on as well, was the. I, in fact, my honourable mentions, I had the, the Shingo Takagi Tomohiro Ishii, which I need to go oh, back yeah. and rewatch, re rewatch as well um, from that. Um, Michael Okuel Fantasmo. Um, oh yeah. Not for it being the kind of greatest match in the world. There's a live bias there, but again, culmination of a very well to- told story, which mm. leads to the person who's kind of let's face it, El Fantasmo is going New Japan kind of full-time as well. Apparently might be moving out there as well at the same time. And it was the perfect way of kind of putting over the next junior champ and someone who is perfectly suited to being the junior champ and a, and kind of that homegrown and the crowd connection he has there as well. And it had been a kind of a long time coming that they'd really built to this with Oku, but it worked. And they gave them the, the semi-main. And I was, you know, and, and it, yeah, I loved watching the, I loved watching this match. And, um, and it's kind of one of those, it's, it's, it's a proper professional wrestling match with a heel face dynamic that yeah. you understand and a, and a face that you like. And that's one of the things about Michael Oku is when it comes to him being likable, like he, he, he really has that about him. He's got that kind of natural underdog oh, yeah. baby face. He's great about strength, him. really, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is his great strength. And here you've got someone like El Fantasmo, who you know, I have to say, when he was doing the whole heel thing at first, I was like, no. But it it's kind of grown on me. He's become a bit more mature about it as well. And yeah. here he was in. He was, you know, he was there doing kind of what Zach did to a degree, but obviously exactly. with someone. Yeah who needed that kind of level to be there as well. So, yeah. Yeah, giving it out to the heels tonight. Well done, heels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, you know, you mightn't like heel shtick, but when okay. the payoff is good, it's worth it. You know what I mean? And it makes sitting through matches that mightn't be as good from a match quality point of view. When you get the big moment and the big pop, that's what it's all about. You know what I mean? That's what wrestling was always about, really, you know. Um, and you, you did me the favour. We're doing our bit where we pick up... <laughs> The best WWE match of the month, which actually was a pretty decent match. You, you picked out the highest ranked one on, on Grapple for February, um, JP. So what was that? I went with the uh, Broser weights. So Matt Riddle and Pete Dunne versus Bobby Fish and Kylo, Kylo Riley. I'll say Red Dragon because that's who they are. Um, and I went, um, I'd gone 4.25 on this before. But going down to a four on rewatch, it, it kind of... Unfortunately for me, I watched this after rewatching the um, Bucks versus Omega and Page oh, match. It, hadn't uh, <laughs> it, it didn't stand a cat's chance in L, really, by by comparison with it. It's kind of as good as they as their tag matches tend to be in WWE. Really, outside of the kind of having the revival and DIY kind of back into the mix yeah. and, and doing those matches again. Um, and for me, it's it. You know, I love Kyle O'Reilly. Um, I, you know, I have to say, I'm not as mad about Pete Dunne in this role. To be honest, I don't think it necessarily plays entirely to his strengths. But he's got a good team with Riddle. Riddle's a sort of charisma machine as well. Enjoyable enough, but rather like how I feel about another match on that card, the sort of Keith Lee Dominic Dijakovic, very contrived as well, yeah. and 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 kind of a bit a bit of a mess and a bit of a hodgepodge and 
a match like this, I think he should have been given like a bit longer, to be honest with you, to kind of give it some proper time to breathe. And I think there was times where they they kind of fall in love with some of the undisputed era bros away kind of shtick as well at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, I've I've marked that one down to four and may go down to three point seven five on it really. Not to say it's bad, but I think it's three point seven five from WWE. That's what by Meltzer ratings, that's possibly six and a half. <laughs> but Dave actually went four point seven five on it. Would you believe? What the fuck? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, he, lo- he loves his NXT. He, he, people get, get on to him about AEW. He loves his NXT. They always put massive ratings on, the, on, on oh, those yeah. NXT. Uh, the takeover ones in particular. And like I, I would probably lump that match in with, with the Hiromu Dragon Lee one in terms of mm-hmm. you watch it, what will I remember about it in a few months' time? And again, yeah. like when you had it on your li- list, I was kind of thinking, God, I better go back and find a review <laughs> of this match because I can't remember any of it. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's good stuff and it's athletic stuff, but none of it's sticking. And it's the yeah. difference between the Bucks match having the character work and this match having not really an awful lot of character work or depth mm-hmm. to it, unfortunately, you know. Um, so two more quick things. I'm just going to run through. I, I like to do some hidden gems for people that I have in my honourable mentions list, um, JP. So very quickly run through those. Um, IWTV, I try to kind of promote them as much as I can because I, I hear you guys on Spotlight talking about, you know, people should give up their network subscription and support more worthy causes. And I do feel IWTV, independent wrestling TV, is a really, like if people want to spend their money on something that genuinely supports independent wrestling, I couldn't think of a better place to give it than them. You know what I mean? And there's a couple of matches this month from there. Uh, The first one is from AIW. Um, It's actually uh, Alex Shelley against a young wrestler called Lee Moriarty. And it's the third match in a trilogy that these guys have had kind of between last year and this year. Um, a very simple match on the face of it. Um, it's a young baby face against a heel veteran. And it's it's the, this Moriarty guy can really go on the mat. He, he reminds me an awful lot of, of a young Alex Shelley, actually, to be honest. like So it's like a guy kind of wrestling a reflection of himself almost. Um, and they just tell a really nice, tight, efficient match that doesn't outstay its welcome. And you kind of have the the young guy earning the respect of the veteran by the end of it. So really, really good one. And then from Chikara, um, Halla Wicked against Mike Quackenbush, a battle of two Chikara originals. And again, really smooth technical bout. Um, it's only the second time they've ever wrestled when you think about the fact that he was trained really? by Quackenbush, Halla Wicked. Yeah, yeah, they, they've, they've kept it as a special singles match over the years. So we're only getting it for the second time here. And it's really, really good. And Hallowicked kind of heals it up a little bit and works over Quackenbush's midsection. And Quack sells it really well. Just a really, really good match. Again, get your IWTV subscription. You know, support them in this difficult time. Have a look at those matches. Um, three to one battle. I can't do a podcast without praising Daniel McCabe. That's that's in the rules, JP. Um, You're contractually obliged, sir. Contractually obliged, absolutely. It's like you and Matt Riddle. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll be including that every available opportunity. Absolutely. And it's just this another Maccabi special where he has a great match with what I would call a lesser known worker. Um, really the usual great match work you get from him. But she's able to hang with him and she's able to do the fine detail stuff that he does. And there's a really nice post match in this where he gives his scarf 
to Liza Hall in a kind of a mirror of the, the great match he had with Thatcher, where Thatcher gave him his scarf in a kind of validation of his skill as a wrestler. Um, we talked about Big Japan earlier. A um, couple of matches from their show on the 24th of February. Um, again, our friend, the, the junior heavyweight champion, Yuya Aoki, against Lindemann from Stronghearts. Another great title defense from him. And the main event, uh, Daichi Hashimoto against another wrestler I'm really high on in Takuya Nomura. Uh, really, really good stuff. Nomura works the arm. Uh, lots of vicious strikes. Um, and just really good. I'm not that high on Hashimoto personally, but Nomura kind of brings him up in this match and has one of the best matches he's ever had, really. And can't, ha- can't have you on here, JP, without praising a bit of OTT. So Good I've gone in. for, on the first day of the month, David Starr against LJ Cleary. Mm. And we, 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 talk, we talked about people being elevated into the top level guys, like with, with the Aoyagi match in all Japan and, and, and Page in AEW. This was really the match that convinced me that LJ clearly could be a future champion in OTT. Like I, I, I had been a little bit concerned about him up till now that maybe he was going down the comedic route too much, but this is a really, really good, like they go over 25 minutes, really good long main event where he really looks like he belongs against a world-class wrestler mm. like star, great limb work, great selling. Um, and it was in the ringside. I saw it live in the ringside club, just the perfect venue for that kind of match where you've got the hot crowd who kind of, they're cheering for Star, but they also want Cleary to win. So there's a bit of a divide in the crowd, but the usual hot atmosphere you get for a Star match. And just really, really good. And a really good mm. kind of, as I said, the match I needed to see from LJ just to be sure that he can really be a top guy in OTT in the future. Um, so, yeah. So that's it for February. I think we, we've done a good job. I think it was a really strong month overall, I would say. And like it was hard to pick a top five. There were other matches we didn't even talk about that could have got in there. Um any other last comments on the month, JP, or will we move on? I Just to say overall, really strong month. Looking at some of those matches on there, I was thinking Quackenbush in February 2020. Like, to go back and watch a watch a Quackenbush match, it's, yeah. it's quite nice for that. But like you say, really strong month. Like, it was the last of the strong months that we've had for this year. It was, yeah. Up, up, up to was. this point. So I'm lucky in that regard. I really am. I'm counting my blessings on that one that... I got like that we were kind of sport for choice. And also that a lot of these matches, like the ones that were deserving of the kind of epic qualities and the epic capabilities had kind of earned the right to that as well. And a good mix of matches and Absolutely. styles yeah. And, yeah. and, and genres as well, which kind of, and that's part of, you know, of a, of a show like this, where you're kind of looking that's at it, like, exactly. maybe yeah. I don't particularly want to be, uh, want you know a match necessarily let's say like nakajima versus Hideki suzuki which is entirely different away from that tag match in aew but you know it, it's it's just sort of those little diff that it's those different types of matches out there so there's always something there that you can you can kind of t- taste your palate on if that makes any sense which it probably doesn't and one last <laughs> little thing one last little thing jp before we go to our classic match um it's the Grapple Network. We have to put the boots into WWE. And Grapple Gareth was, was kind enough. He, he sent me along a spreadsheet of uh, basically all the match rankings for, for the month of February. The oh, two, The two lowest ranked matches out of, out of the hundreds that were on the Grapple app for February. WWE main roster from that... I don't. I can't even remember the name of it. I, I didn't take... I didn't even write down the names of these matches. But two matches from that show in Saudi... We had the Fiend oh. against Bill Goldberg, a grapple average of 0.6 of a star, 
Jesus. and Brock Lesnar against Ricochet with a grapple average of 0.5 of a star, a half a star average. And like they're WWE matches, so they're like they have hundreds of, of rankings. It's not just two or three people ranking them low and that's it. These are really robust rankings. So, yeah, there you go. Just goes to show you, you you've got New Japan filling our lists and you've got AEW putting on great matches. Main roster, WWE, the two worst matches of the entire month in the world of wrestling. Yep. It shows us that we're missing nothing by not watching <laughs> exactly. SmackDown and Raw. We're missing we're nothing. Good calls. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Very good calls. There's a lot of valuable time being saved, <laughs> even in a global <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So finally, JP, to close out the show, we've got a classic match. Uh, and I think very much a JP Houlihan choice. Uh, let the listeners know oh, what match yeah. you've gone for. So the match I've gone for is a match that I saw live in progress. And in fact, if you're watching it, um, you can see me, Benno and Joe stood together in the corner that we used to be in. Um, Yeah, Uh, which is kind of how our podcast kind of came about. It was all through progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we we always make sure to thank them for that that one as well. But from chapter (laughs) 39, very much the kind of like peak progress, um, the graps of wrath and I've gone for, yeah, Matt Riddle, Will Ospreay. And the reason I've gone for this is not because it's five stars, because I think the match they had in OTT would be considered to be a a better match per se. I don't know what your what your thoughts necessarily would, would be on that. But for me, the reason why I've gone with this is is it was it's Matt Riddle. That's an obvious one. It's Will Ospreay. <laughs> That's an obvious one from this show. Oh, it was the first time I met Riddle that day so like uh, uh, always absolute fondness and you meet him the first time and you just go oh this guy's great he's just got the easiest yeah. going charisma he's absolutely buzzing to be there he'd been wrestling a year at that point so he'd only started in 2015 he I, and you know he when you think of him now and we've been kind of moaning that he really should have been on the main roster sort of two years ago if anything and he's only kind of getting to that point now it just shows you about like what a phenom he is. But the main reason I've chosen it is it's a sprint. And something that I quite often rail at when I'm at live events is the lost art of the sprint. And yeah. the idea that not every match needs to be these kind of epics. And that you can tell stories in between five to eight minutes. This is eight minutes long. And what an introduction. And... You know, and at this point, people don't know Riddle outside of those who've been watching Evolve. Okay, so a few people are there. He had a name, he had a buzz. They might well have thought he's got the look. He looks like he's kind of naturally suited into going WWE, but without knowing really anything about him. And he runs out and he hits a knee on Osprey straight away. This is a very, a much slimmer Osprey, I might add. He's not in bad shape or anything, but he's just, he's not jacked up like he is now. And my God. Uh, like for eight minutes it's just full-on action of him sort of taking osprey by surprise which normally feels like a very osprey trait osprey completely sort of not knowing what to expect and and they're actually wrestling for an opportunity to because mark haskins had to vacate the world yes, title exactly so yes for the title match yeah, is going to be on at the end of the show and they have this sprint and it's completely just about this whole new star being sold to this audience. And with the benefit of hindsight, it's amazing that, that you wouldn't really put your main belt on him because he would have been kind of perfect for that. Because if you remember him with the Atlas title, 
Remember that? Um, yeah. He was carrying that around the world. He was on the Great Wall of China and stuff. I remember seeing it with a progress <laughs> scarf and a bloody Atlas title. And you're going, this guy is great for you for this. But I, I love it. I mean, there's one botched spot in it, um, which is the kind of reverse Rana. But I also think they do a really good ch- job covering it up and going. I think he goes straight yeah. into a German afterwards, yeah. which for someone who's a year in and Osprey not being the Osprey of 2020 as well. You're like, my God, that's pretty incredible. And yeah, I went 4.25 because maybe that's the the kind of what I might consider to be like the bar on what a kind of sprint could be. Um, for this but I love this yeah it's and it and it forms I know for me Benno and Joe it was a match we watched and immediately we all fell in love with Riddle me more so than them obviously (laughs) but like completely at that point it was like this guy is a fucking god yeah need to be on him straight away so yeah that that was the match I chose for you what did you make for it I loved it absolutely loved it uh four and a half for me uh could go higher to be honest i i have no problem with with throwing high ratings at at short matches uh as you said it t- nearly takes more skill to tell a good story in eight to ten minutes than it does when you have 30 or 40 minutes to do it you know what i mean it, it's a particular skill that not all wrestlers have you know and like but as you said what an introduction for a wrestler to a scene and to a promotion i think he may have riddle may have done a couple of smaller shows on the same tour before the progress thing. But this was mm. progress. This, this was the big stage in Britress at the time. You know what I mean? And what a way to announce yourself to, 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 to a new public. And look at how popular, like he became ingrained in the culture of Britress. Like he was over at OTT nearly every month for, for a good while after that. You know what I mean? And oh, it all, it, it, you know, he, he seemed to be there. He was in, in England as much as he was in Evolve by the end. You know what I mean? He, he literally became part of the furniture and it all became from this one match where he just exploded mm. onto the scene. And like you, you've covered a lot of it, JP. The, the, the psychology of it was perfect because as you said, the winner was going to get to wrestle in a multi-man match at the end of the show to see who'd become the new champion. So it makes total sense for Riddle to come flying out of the blocks in this match and try and end it with a bicycle knee straight away. You know what I mean? He wants to save his energy because he wants to try and win the title at the end of the show. So even from a psychological aspect, it's really, really good. The chemistry, it's a pity these two guys have gone their separate ways in terms of Riddle's gone to WWE and Osprey's gone to New Japan. We got that match in OTT. I think, didn't they do one on a Mania weekend as well? um, Another one of those Mercury Rising shows. And I think that was it. That's all we ever got. But like this was their first time to ever lock up in a wrestling ring and look at the chemistry straight away. And what a rivalry that could have been over the years. Like if he had gone to New Japan and they were having matches in G1 climaxes and all that kind of thing. Just incredible stuff. And like that botch, as you said, it it was a Rana that Osprey tried to hit. And I don't think Riddle gets over properly for it. So he doesn't land properly and it looks kind of bad. But instead of trying to sell it, Riddle jumps up and does something else. I think he throws a huge German suplex kind That's of as a recovery it. thing. But like the wrestling brain of the man, as you said, 12 months into his career, like 
it's the kind of thing you'd expect a veteran to do. You know what I mean? To have the wherewithal, to think on his feet and say, that looked like crap. I'm not going to sell that. I'm going to jump up and we'll play it off like a sports thing where, where he tried to hit a move and he just didn't get it properly. And I it had no effect on me kind of a thing. To do that that young is phenomenal. Like You, you, you might not look at Riddle and think of him as a guy with a wrestling brain. You might think of him as an athlete and as a, as a great striker and all those other things he's good at. But like that's evidence that the man has a serious brain on him as well. You know what I mean? To, to come from MMA and to be doing that kind of stuff. Um, and like, yeah, just like they're doing insane stuff. Like like there's there's Osprey using that the kind of, he's nearly doing the Jody Fleisch moonsault balcony off the wall. Oh, at one point, yeah. He kind of moonsaults over Riddle's head off the balcony almost. Just crazy, crazy stuff. You know what I mean? Like I talked earlier about heavy metal wrestling. This is bloody heavy metal wrestling with the volume turned up to 10. You know what oh, I mean? It's just death metal wrestling this yeah yeah (laughs) wrestling exactly really really good the best praise i can give this match jp is that not even glenn joseph could ruin it with his terrible commentary (laughs) no no he couldn't i actually thought um who's good on the um uh, is rj singh yes much better much more reserved much more yeah yeah much more reserved there was a couple of interesting i remember one of the things speaking to him at the next time i saw him because i said like you got a hell of a response and he told me about the first, when he fought in Nottingham at UFC and the time they were building up a fight with Dan Hardy. I don't know how up, if you know Dan Hardy is. He's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the name anyway, yeah. And, and and so he had people calling him a cunt and spitting on him and all this kind of stuff. And he was just like, like complete, like quite horrified by it. And he says that part of the reason that he's always loved wrestling is just the fans have kind of got it. So, like, you know, they... I think he the idea of the the, the kind of the way the fans were always going to kind of appreciate it, and I think he was always really overwhelmed with it, and it helped take him on to the next level because it gave him this kind of instant credibility that you take him out of a comfort zone possibly and what Evolve could have been for what we all knew of someone who's been very well protected and hidden. Was he in catch point at that stage as well? So they were kind of trying to build him up with I think with it would have been Thatcher and. Um, Oh, who else would have been in it? Uh, Gulak would have been there. Gulak, yeah, and Tracy Williams, Freddie Ahai. That's right. And and you're kind of thinking, oh, okay, this all feels very like he's got a good physique and he's got this MMA name and they're going to bring him in. But this is what was great about this, and you've you've summed it up really well, but it's this idea of the hype is worth it. Here's this, this guy who's being hyped up a year into it. You see him up close with your own eyes and you go oh shit yeah i get this i completely get the hype train for it and look at him now i would say now he should be their main champion like i the, 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 of someone to kind of go with and you know four years ago this is where he was making his debut over here and you know before you know it we're seeing him in every promotion like you mentioned up and down the uk which is a testament i think to how much he enjoyed working here and the environment meant of the amount of wrestlers, you know, think of the matches you've seen him involved in here all the time. I should shut up about Matt Riddle. I could talk about him for four hours, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> ah, look, we're all about positivity and people gushing about oh, good wrestling. Yeah. Um, JP Hoolahan talking Riddle will, will never get old, I don't think. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know, the one thing I was laughing to myself about was I was looking at this, like, and looking at that atmosphere in the electric, in the electric ballroom. And, like, this was really the, this is what, November 2016. This yeah. was the, the around about the height of Rift I would say. Like, the ballroom was hopping every month. Progress was a must-see promotion. And I was looking at it thinking, and I an awful idiot 
that I started doing the British wrestling experience in 2019 and that I wasn't doing it in 2016 oh. when I could have been talking about all this kind of stuff instead of the stuff I have to talk about now. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Where, where, where it becomes like, here's ICW and you're thinking, oh Christ, this is not going to be easy, is it? But yeah, we, but we were so spoiled as well. Oh, but, I, rough. But, I, yeah. but I think there was always the sense of, uh, certainly amongst a few of us of like, these really are good. They're not going to last forever, so appreciate them while we can. And luckily, obviously, from different eras where so much, not so much stuff is documented, we're lucky that we have so much of this stuff to go back on. Just to kind of remind ourselves about what the scene was like then. And that was very much in the day of the 30-second sellouts as well. You weren't getting it. You had to oh, be yeah. on that ticket. It's, 7 yeah, o'clock yeah. on a Monday then they moved it to midday, I think, and it was just like, well, I'm teaching at that time, so there's no chance I could stop a class to go. Bear with me a second. I could come back here in a good mood or a bad mood. Let's see. Let's see what happens. But, um, but yeah, it was very much that height of of Brit rest. And I suppose in some ways that's what part of this is. It's like a nostalgia trip of going back to like a time when you know you see some of the other stuffs on the card. It's not so great, but you don't remember that stuff. This is the stuff that sticks with you from that time. That's it. And was this the night Pete won the belt? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, uh, so like, he, yeah, yeah, he won, won it in the main event, yeah. Yeah, and so that's November. Two months later, NXT UK gets, or whatever they were calling it at the time, WWE yeah. UK was announced, and the wheels started coming off. Like So this was, in some ways, this was nearly the peak. You know what I mean? We were just before the whole thing started to kind of fall apart. So yeah, at least we have it to look back on, I suppose, don't we? Exactly. It's unsullied with their touch at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's pure progress. You know what I mean? And you could get an organic moment like a guy walking in that, that not a lot of people would be aware of apart from some hardcore fans. You know what I mean? And mm. stuff that just it seems they're incapable of doing anymore. You know what I mean? That, that kind of organic reaction and that organic moment and putting on a match that gets people buzzing. There's just they don't even have the quality of wrestler like these two. Like you could honestly say that these two are maybe the most naturally gifted athletes wrestling in yeah. the world at the moment. In terms of raw physical ability to do things, name two better than these two. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Just in terms of just having that kind of real prodigious talent. Because in yeah, some ways, exactly. that's what both of them are, that they're wrestling prodigies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, we're just good, it seems, from the minute they stepped in a wrestling ring. You know, it's yeah. just crazy. And to think that you guys were getting that in London, on a November, you know, yeah, on a random oh. show in November, like it's just crazy to look back on now, you know. Oh, it seems mental now looking back on it of like, Christ, I was there. And these are, you know, it was around that kind of point in time. You had things like, I think the year after taking my kids to the cockpit to see Keith Lee versus Matt Riddle. And I was well. sat there going like, what the fuck? This is mental watching this match in front of 100 people. Um yeah. Yeah, happier times. Happier times, JP. <laughs> happier times. But at least we have the memories, and you have you have your memories of times with Matt. Anyway, Always. happy times spent together. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, JP, I've I've taken up far, far, far too much of your time. Um, all that's left is just to thank you so much for coming on. Like, absolute it, pleasure. Thank you. It's you know, it, it's not an easy thing to host a podcast and, and a long post podcast at that. But like, you've made it such a pleasure. You're just such an easy person to talk to, and we could easily go another hour if we had to. So, just to thank you so much for coming on with me uh, and making my job so easy tonight. 
absolute pleasure as well. Listeners might know this half an hour of Waterford-based content at the start of <laughs> at, at the start of this podcast that we're leaving out entirely as well. But no, no, absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed doing it. Absolute breeze. And you know, it's great to talk about good wrestling. I think as well as much as anything else. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and at yeah. times, it's very easy like at times with the with stories and everything else to kind of focus on on stuff that, that isn't good and then you kind of remember actually there's been this really good stuff that only happened four months ago now at this point and you go back and watch it and it does seem like it's you know from a different world or at least sort of a good year ago but it's so much fun and what you realize at these points why you're a wrestling fan why you do podcasts is you want to talk about great wrestling and you know yeah it was a br- it was great to do because it was meant watching loads and loads of really good wrestling and I can't really argue with any of that. So thank any, you. No, no problem at all. Any plugs, JP? Obviously, you've got the spotlight to plug and your Twitter, maybe. Yep, uh, Twitter. You can find me at JPGP. That's three E's um, at the end. Um, yeah, you can also find me on Grapple Spotlight, um, which is on this this podcasting network. Uh, generally out on Mondays. So doing that, and I think then we're working our way uh, also through a sort of looking at the 90s wrestling scene and looking sort of individual shows. I've spoken to you about um, uh, a show, you know, that, that that hopefully we'll all be doing together very soon as well. Um, and I think we've got an episode uh, coming up um, for that where we're going to be looking at ECW coming up reasonably soon oh, as great. well. Good stuff. So, yeah, um, yeah, have a listen to that. Yeah, and from myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Jamesy underscore 2015. You can see me every two weeks on post-wrestling on the British Wrestling Experience with uh, Ben Owen, Martin Bushby. Um, Our last episode, we did a British Wrestling uh, mixtape where we looked at eight random matches from the past of of British and European wrestling. And you can also catch me on a podcast with Ewan McKenzie that came out uh, this weekend called Discuss Mm. Lariat, where I had the opportunity to go... great title, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant name for us. Yeah, the Discuss Lariat, uh, where I had the chance to talk about Timothy Thatcher. And in much the same way that you can't stop JP talking about Matt Riddle once he starts. You know me and Timothy Thatcher, I could talk all day. So really enjoyed doing that. Um, Give him a follow and give that a listen. Um, But that's pretty much it for this month. We'll be back next month with uh, March 2020, uh, working on getting a guest on for that. So uh, thanks from me and goodbye. Bye. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon, Warren G was on the street, trying to consume some skirts for the E, so I could get some phones, rolling in my ride, chilling all alone. Just hit the east side of the LBC.